1: You know, I've got to say one thing about my co-host Troy Escamilla. Um It's his career. He's very modest and he's humble, and he, you know, he promotes himself as being just the director of a few a few films we've come to know, films we come to love, uh, including Teacher Shortage. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. But he never talks about his um, his quite illustrious uh, though discreet acting career and I do have to say I'm just I am coming away from this film today and seeing what I saw, I was blown away by Troy's performance as Henrietta Stiles in the movie <laughs> Willard. I did not know Troy that you in that 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 look that withered, emaciated, just mentally unstable look that you pulled off. I am blown away by your performance. I really hope everybody watches this film so they can see Troy at his finest performance.
2: <laughs> laying on the laying on the staircase. <laughs>
1: <laughs> People were not prepared.
2: <laughs> I can re- I can recreate it. I can recreate it.
1: <laughs> you just scared the shit out of me. I wasn't even prepared for that. Uh Henry of the South. You know what? Really actually played by Jackie Burroughs, let's be real. But I mean the look it's uncanny the resemblance, Troy. <laughs> Tell me about your experience with this movie. Really quickly, how long has it been since you've seen this film? Have you ever seen this film? I need to know.
2: i never have seen this film.
1: Oh okay. <laughs>
2: until this viewing. So oh, yes. Wow. I know I'm guilty, I have to admit, I have to admit it. I, I feel I felt, you know, when, when you brought this title up and, and whatnot as one that we were gonna cover, I kind of felt guilty for not seeing it because you know, I know the original I've seen the original Willard. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed that one. And I know, you know, there's the the Michael Jackson Ben song that's kind of iconic now that this film utilizes quite a bit. And I, I remember like, it's interesting because it, I feel like this film is, and I don't want to say this in a really bad way because it's it's a pretty good film. I feel like it's so forgettable or it's, it's forgotten. And I really didn't even think about this title until you brought it up as one that we Uh, We're going to be reviewing this month. So I am thoroughly glad that I got to view it because what a, what a treat, you know? And I just want to say this right off the bat. You know, we talk about, you know, lately we've talked about all of these horror performances that have gotten snubbed by awards, right? Uh, Mia Goth this year in Pearl. There's been Lupita Nyong'o, Tony Collette, Hereditary, Uh, Florence Pugh in uh, Midsummer. What about fucking Crispin Glover in Willard? I was actually very blown away by his performance in this film.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, Crispin Glover is is always kind of playing these Larger than life are often more eccentric characters. I mean, I thought of this, I automatically thought it was like a Pokemon evolution of the character that he played in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle when he was obsessed with hair. Like this is that character with like a heart. (laughs) Like, you know, super weird. His portrayal of of Willard is a very uh, internalized Uh, very sad, but his own worst enemy. There's so many interesting themes explored with this character and how he is like a subject of a really unfortunate just upbringing, but also like he is kind of his own downfall as well in the fact that he just operates the way he does and he makes some really poor choices and it causes for a really unique reaction from at least from me as the viewer. Um, So when this title was recommended, by our guest today we are having a guest this is exciting it's been a hot minute it's been a while yeah it's been it a while yeah when this title was recommended like either you know we always say pick pick a few that you really love and we're gonna dwindle it down it's like american idol we like vote it down to one selection and like when this is on the list this really popped out to me because you're like you're right troy this is a title that came out i remember being around never saw really anything to do with it after um i'll see little hints of it In the annals of the internet, like horror blogs like coming up here and there. Uh, And whenever you see it talked about, it's with a lot of like love and appreciation from the fan base. Um, So God, I'm happy that we chose a movie that's just so out of left field. And our guest, Kyle Haynes, who is here with us right now. Say hello, Kyle. Hello. You are the reason for this title coming up. And I just want to ask you right off the bat, before we even get into a proper introduction, tell us why. You picked Willard.
0: So... This was back when my mom and I were living in an apartment and the previous owner left behind their surround sound system. And the only problem is it worked with AV cables only. So the red, white, and uh, yellow cables. Um, And I wanted to pick a movie during the horror season that was VHS that I could utilize with the surround system. And the first one I picked was Willard. Um, And I was so enraptured by this, this this creation that I was witnessing and hearing all of that that unique music score and that atmospheric sound design just crashing through the speakers. I fell in love with the movie right then and there. And since 2015, I've been watching it every year for Halloween. Oh,
1: understandable. Like that is a kind of a really great film for that season. It captures like a lot of that like dark, chilly desolate, autumnal vibe for sure. That really is like a great seasonal uh, selection. I, I think that it would make sense to play it around that time. I might add it to my own lineup because honestly, I agree on that. I always like to explore like why a person picks a title. What is the motivating factor? What makes it pop for them? Because um, I think that tells a lot about of like, a, like a film viewer, you know, like your top movies are very defining of I think uh, who you are and what your tastes are. Uh, and you are somebody who has a lot of great taste when it comes to cinema in general. I know few people who can articulate and properly express uh, uh, an accurate description of of a piece of cinema with a lot of thought behind it. That's never really offensive, but it's always very, like, it can be very pointed. And I appreciate how honest you are when you do sit down and review titles. I, I don't know anybody else who knows as much about film in general as you. Um, have you been a fan of cinema since you were a child when did you develop this love for film
0: pretty much ever since i was uh c-sectioned out of my mother was when i fell in love with 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 movies i don't i can't i, it, I would probably have to be around four or five years old is the earliest i can remember i i don't know how we drove there but we did and we went to a, a, a movie theater my first time it was it was 2003, it wasn't this, which would have been horrific, but uh, (laughs) it was um, Good Boy, which was a movie about Matthew Broderick who voices a fucking space dog comes down to Earth and is like, are you human dogs doing okay down here? But my, my mom pointed to me and she goes, this is a movie theater. Other people are here. You sit down, you be quiet. If you talk, we're leaving. I don't remember leaving. And I go, I see everything Every week I see all the new stuff. I have I see like over 500 movies a year. So I, I love cinema. I love the art form. If a movie's bad, I'm really going to dig into it. But I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm very passionate. I love it.
1: You're passionate. You're opinionated. I say that in a great way because I'm an opinionated person and you're honest. And, you know, there's never going to be one universal opinion on film. Like, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. It's a fact of the fucking matter. Not one movie out there is universally loved or universally hated. I do feel that, you know, at least in the way that you articulate your opinions, there's so much thought behind it. It's clear you really understand the process of film, um, things that apply to what defines a very good film. Um, and, And I am curious, recently, like within the last year or so, name like two or three movies, ideally horror, but they don't have to be. But name off three movies that have really stood out to you as just exceptional pieces of filmmaking.
0: Uh, Well, right off the bat, Ty West's X and Pearl. I'm going to lump those together. Astounding in how unique they are in... The very different like filmic genres, subgenres that they're a part of. X is very much a love letter to the seventies uh, and the backwoods slashers that were prominent during that time. And even though Pearl takes place in nineteen eighteen, it's it's very very a lovingly done tribute and ode to like the the movies of the thirties and forties and fifties. So those two really stood out, and another one that stood out, one that I, I fucking loved, and I cannot wait to watch it. When when it comes to Blu-ray, I'm watching it like 42 more times. Was uh, Megan for how full blown, just go for broke? Oh yes, this is what we're doing. Go along with us, and we're gonna take you for a friggin' ride. And I and I, it was the movie that my soul needed, and I loved it. So those three perfect examples of of tremendous horror that have stood out in just the last year.
1: That's some good taste, dare
2: I say, wouldn't you say, Troy? Great choices. Great choices. I just saw Megan, what last week? Uh, And really, really enjoyed it. And of course I love, I, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea. Like Roger said, you know, there's no, you know, universally loved film, just like there's no universally loved filmmaker. I personally love Ty West. I've liked all of his films. I love his earlier stuff that is the slow burn. I know me and Roger covered the House of the Devil.
0: I love the House of the Devil. I also
2: love The Sacrament. I love The Roost. I love the Innkeepers. Uh, I mean, he I, I just love his style of filmmaking. He is, you know, one of the few filmmakers out there that really, you can tell horror filmmakers, genre filmmakers, that really takes care in the construction of his of his vision. Um, you know, everything is very carefully put together. And I just love the slow burn like house of the devil. And then keepers have some incredibly, incredibly suspenseful scenes that are just slow builds. I, I love Ty West. So yeah, Pearl, great X great, And I, I, I like the fact that they are, they were kind of so different than what his, he's done before.
1: His films though, always drip atmosphere, whether it be dark and brooding atmosphere or just, I mean, even with this, with, with Pearl, His usage of color, I mean, his incorporation of just these rich, vibrant colors and palettes that we're not used to seeing from him, I would say. Um, It's it's clear there's a lot to crack open there with Ty West. I think there's a lot of big things coming from him as a filmmaker. So I'm going to give him a big fucking budget. Let's just see what happens Uh, because there's going to be something amazing there, I'm sure of it. Kyle, you know, it's funny because I sat down and I normally like have an excerpt or a blurb to like perfectly encapsulate exactly like what... A person is and what represents them and, and, you know, the defining traits, like this person's an actor, this person's a filmmaker, but you like, you're really unique because you cover a lot of ground. You pursue music. I know your concrete angel is the persona you have for your musical aspect. Um, You, you, you are a promoter. You have had multiple channels promoting Cleveland-based film, um, which you know is my hometown, and I'm very proud of it, and I love to see that from anybody. And you've you know built a fan base and a momentum around that, um, and now you're kind of just expanding like all across the fucking board. Now you're an author, and you have multiple books coming out, and we'll we'll get a chance to talk about those too. What would you say if you're going to sit down and really define like or describe yourself and the, what you would say drives you or defines you? how would you describe yourself? Ooh,
0: (laughs) honest reflection moment here. Um, I would describe myself as, um, like anyone would, uh, not perfect, but striving to be the best that you could be. I, I, I would also describe myself as just a a creator, no matter what it is, whether I'm doing a, a, a standard, uh, YouTube video, or if I'm, writing a screenplay or if i'm uh creating an album or hosting a film premiere i just i strive to create and accomplish something creative at the end of the day
1: and that's opened a lot of fucking doors for you because i see you all over the place working with people people i really respect and and uh, trust as artists and as filmmakers and beyond um and i i think you know you're young and there's a lot of great things coming for you and i appreciate that you've always been about taking other artists along for the ride um so troy and i are excited to take you along for the ride on what we do which is talk about fucking movies horror movies big scary movies two big gay men ready to chat it out with my good friend kyle and kyle thank you for picking this title it really it was a great great experience for me getting to revisit this again um i had forgotten so much about this so if if you two are ready, what do you say? You ready to dive in? Let's do
2: it, Roger. Are you Let's ready? Do it.
1: Yeah. Let's go talk about some fucking sentient <laughs> rats. I can't wait. This movie. Oh, my God. This film. There's one thing I can say about it. It has character, dark and melodic and melancholy character. But like this movie knows exactly the tone it's going for. Um, again, we're talking about atmosphere. I mean, talk about a movie dripping with atmosphere. This movie has it for days.
2: Well, and I think it's established right from the opening credit sequence. We we've talked about um, Roger. We I think we even did a top three mini episode on our Patreon of like our top three favorite opening credit sequences. And you know, I had not seen this movie, but right away with the, this opening credit sequence is pretty damn eye-catching, it grabs your attention. There's this beautiful score that is almost like, it's almost Disney-like in a sense that lets you, it kind of really paints that kind of fi- fantastical tone that the f- that the film is going to then uh, permeate. So you get the, these really beautiful images of like the the uh, the basement pipes, the vents uh, as the camera's going through all of these little tunnels and stuff. And then you get like Crispin the Glover's picture pops up. And, and it's just, it's so fun and well done and it really sets the tone for what you are getting with the film. It
1: does. And I, I have to state, knowing that this film is directed by Glenn Morgan, whom Troy directed the Black Christmas remake not many years after that, um, Kyle, kind of, I don't know if you know this, but Troy's favorite movie of all time is the original Black Christmas and we are both fans of the of the 2006 remake um, one that grew on Troy over time and one that I unabashedly love from the moment I fucking saw it but yeah we're fans of it and I gotta say this is a director with with style his footage has substance uh, it's rich it's visually uh, very appealing to look at I would say that applies to both films I want to see more from this man <laughs> like give me something else this shit looks great
0: I, uh, I This is going to make both of you mad. The only black Christmas that I have seen is is the 2019 one. Oh, Kyle. <laughs>
1: Kyle. You sh- oh, go fuck yourself. You Kyle. shot me in the fucking heart. <laughs> get, get off. <laughs> Ending this episode now. Hang, no, hang oh, my God. oh, God. <laughs> tell me. Tell me. At least tell me. Either. Perform CPR let me die. Uh, <laughs> what did you think of it? <laughs>
0: well, I remember I sat in the theater with my friend, um, one of my best friends, Austin, and I looked over at him, and he gave me this look of just utter despair because in, in a half hour, we were going into uh, the newest Jumanji that was that was playing at the time. And he goes don't ever take me to see something like this again. And I said, I liked it. And he goes, good for you.
1: <laughs> that film single-handedly ended the Me Too movement. I mean, that, that movie, <laughs> It is. it made so many people angry like at, at the women in it for no reason whatsoever except bad writing. And it, oh God, I like Imogene Boots, Aside from hating her name, I thought she was a great actress, but now... After that movie, I just don't trust her anymore. <laughs> I don't trust her. But you know what? That's for another conversation. Kyle, we're tying you down. We're pulling a uh, clockwork orange on you and keeping your eyes open. We're making you watch both Black Christmas, the original.
0: I have all three of them. And Black I, Christmas 2006. I, I, I have like, all Watch th- them. I'm going to watch
1: <laughs> Now. <laughs> like, we're stopping it and you're watching them. No, but seriously, like, don't ever let that be the film that defines your opinion on goddamn Black Christmas. That is not Black Christmas. No. Oh no, no.
0: I never, I never, I never let it. And when that, when when that opened, and people were like walking out of theaters, I'm like, yeah, that's yeah, I know, (laughs) yeah, I I know. (laughs)
1: But at least you know, and this shows me that this director is one whom should be given more opportunities because we've seen two examples of films from him that have a very standout visual quality and i'm just like why isn't he making
0: more shit
2: yes well I'm, I'm assuming that the vitriol that the black christmas 2006 remake received upon its release in theaters because it was panned it was panned by critics it was panned by horror fans particularly fans of the original black christmas it, it did pretty bad at the box office i think that that probably sealed his career in terms of a filmmaking and you know he really hasn't done anything of substance since and it's a shame because now people look back on the 2006 black christmas remake and are like you know what for what it is it's a fucking blast is it the original no but if you go into that film and you you look at it from a filmmaking standpoint i mean atmosphere what we're talking about with this film the black christmas remake permeates christmas atmosphere
0: uh, it was also protested for some reason, a bunch of a bunch of people were upset that such a horrifying movie was coming out on Christmas Day. They couldn't believe it. So there were there were people that
1: that's tale as old as time. They've been pro- protesting those movies from the eighties. I don't know why they just can't let it goddamn <laughs> be. We want to see women dying at Christmas time. Let us have our pleasures. Like you're, we're going to make more of them. <laughs> there will be another. Remake, I'm sure, in three years. But but yeah, I mean, they did get protested. I think that his name being attached to that, you're right, Troy, a movie that was uh, just poorly received, unfair, and had that kind of a negative connotation to it, uh, probably just prevented him from having an expansive career because it's a shame. Both of these films show for what I think makes the traits of a fantastic director. Substance, style, Personality. Um, so yeah, let, let's go ahead and dive in. We're through the credits, and this movie really starts moving pretty fast yeah. right off the bat. I mean, like it's telling a story. It moves at a pretty fast pace.
0: Yeah, there. I, I mean, right, right after those credits are done, you meet Willard. You hear his mother yell for him, Willard. There are rats in the basement.
1: This woman. <laughs> Let's let's pause for a second. This woman, I I don't think I have ever hated a character in a film as much as I hate goddamn fucking Wilhelmina. I mean, you to want to talk about a performance that sticks with you? like This broad is repulsive as a human. I'm sure she's sliding into dementia, but it makes me mad at her nonetheless. Um, she at one point asks if her son's penis is hard. We'll get into that later. That that left like a bad taste in my mouth. So I mean, but like I also get that they're supposed to make it clear that this character, or I'm sorry, Henrietta. I said Wilhelmina, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Henrietta. Yes, but... <laughs> some, it's thing. some elderly matronly name. And she is really not the main antagonist here. She's just kind of a side story. But when she comes onto camera, I just like I was waiting for her to have such a gratuitous horrible death because she's just so repulsive but unfortunately she's just consumed by rats or so it seems but yeah no I I think they did such a great job of creating multiple characters here who are just like wretched like both of the villainous characters the two focal villainous characters her and then the character that we learn later is uh, the boss Frank um, are just truly like awful repulsive maniacal at times people Um, and this does give you some opportunities to really just root for the character of Willard who is for the most part I mean there's areas to sympathize with him but I would say he is a very flawed anti-hero
0: yes very much so Um, he's very much a recluse and he doesn't he doesn't put himself out there until he 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 like he doesn't put up a fight for himself he's not he's very much he's beaten down and he accepts it he lets people walk all over him at home with his mommy dearest and and at work with his with his tyrannical boss i mean it's 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 everything
2: and he does a good job of portraying that like he's been beaten down his entire life and he just yeah he's just unable to stand up for himself or to come to terms with hey i need to do this because these people are treating me like absolute shit. His boss is equally as repulsive as that haggard looking mother of his. But yeah, the film, I mean, it wastes no time. Yeah, we hear the mother's voice. So Willard must go down in the basement to see if there are rats. And as he's going down the stairs, the electrical, the electrical panel pops, and he does see some kind of rats scattered, scattered throughout the basement. So he has to make a trip to the grocery store to get rat traps. <laughs> And I love this. I love this scene.
1: I love this scene too. I do. I love that for, you know, a good opening of the film, a good chunk of it. There's not really a lot of dialogue. It's kind of just him set along this like awkward, either awkward silence or this like jaunty music played in the store. This like weird pre-recorded, Like it's just such a weird track that they play in the background. And I like that. They like kind of take their time in this moment, him looking at all the different ways that you can kill the rats. It it really gets kind of set up towards what we know is about to come. Like, you go into this movie knowing this man fucking controls rats. If you don't, I don't know what to tell you. It's prominently displayed on the poster art. But, like, they introduce the rats right away. It's the first piece of dialogue you hear. Like, there's rats in the basement. And they get in it. And they kind of set it up like he's reluctant um, to do it, you know. But he has such a strange relationship with the rats.
2: Yeah, I do like the moment that you see that he is somewhat of a of a compassionate person. we'll put it that way because he is looking for the rat trap that he thinks will be like the least harmful to the rats or the ones that he doesn't actually have to see the rat dead in. and when he when he finds out it's the mouse proof too he goes to get that box and of course they're sold out of that one. He gets home and he sets up the rat traps that he he's pulled. he just gets like the traditional rat traps that we all know and love from from movies and you know and he is trying to set it, it catches his finger, so he realizes fuck this is gonna hurt the rats. But what else can he do? You know, his mother's screaming about rats, so he has to contemplate whether he wants to do this or not. And he goes up to bed and there is this moment that is a really cool throwback to the original Willard. When he goes to the uh, fireplace mantle and dusts off his dad's urn, and we see a picture of his dad, and did anybody recognize who the dad was?
0: Yeah, that's um, that's I, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, it's a uh, Bruce Davison.
2: Yes, who played Willard in the original film?
0: Yes, which I thought was a really cool touch. Now I have not seen the original Willard or Ben, uh, which I probably should, but uh, I was aware of who that was and in relation to the film and outside of the film.
1: I honestly have not seen the original Willard or Ben. Um, And I'm, from what I understand of this film, it's a kind of a combination of both. Is that correct? Yes.
2: Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The original has, I mean, it follows the basic storyline. There's still, there's the mother, there's the horrible boss, there's the, you know, working conditions, there's Socrates, there's Ben, but it takes a completely kind of left turn. Uh, from this one, so I would recommend seeing it. It's pretty damn good, actually, for for being 1971. I mean, the, the rat, the fact that the rat effects and whatnot—they're not—they're they're using real rats, but just knowing that it was the 70s and they were able to get these rats to do all these things that they were already that well along, and like using animals in film and being able to train them was quite uh, quite a treat to watch.
1: Yeah, that sounds really awesome to be honest. Because after seeing this, I I am I will say intrigued to look into the original film. We'll have to cover it here. Definitely.
2: Um, Yeah. On his way to bed, his mother calls him. And so far we have not seen this mother. We've just heard this, you know, this voice, this creaky voice. (laughs) And so she calls him and she wants to know what he was doing in the basement. And he tells her that you told me there were rats down there, but I went down and I didn't see any rats. (laughs) And she's like, I know there's rats down there. I can smell them. All my life, I've been able to smell mice.
1: This woman is clearly I don't, <laughs> not. I don't know what that all means. All there,
2: <laughs> smell woman, mice.
1: This, I mean, this woman I'm <laughs> suspecting is like deep into the progressions of dementia, based off what I'm gathering. Um, I mean, because the things she says are un unreasonable i mean like <laughs> ma'am i'm sorry you, you're just your house smells disgusting in general because it's <laughs> decrepit and it's crumbling and it's this massive massive gothic mansion by the way
2: really let's huge. take a
1: moment to acknowledge the the main setting of this film because it is a character all of itself and it is a grand
0: yes from i mean it's accompanied in the exterior with like Wisping willows and lingering branches. And e- anytime you see the exterior of the house, there's wind and leaves blowing by it. And it's just this humongous piece of artistic creation and, and beauty.
1: Yeah, it's just like dark and it's dusty and dismal. Like you mentioned, Troy, he runs his finger uh, through the dust of like um, the layer of dust on his father's urn and he like polishes it off. And you can tell this place has just been, kind of falling apart. So there is an instantaneous kind of um, sympathy established for Willard. Um, you It's clear you're supposed to, as the viewer, feel bad for him. I mean, right off the bat, when you see the mom, you can tell this woman is on her last fucking leg and he has to deal with her. I will say, though, over the course of the movie, regarding just Willard, and because he is the focus of the whole fucking story, never is he really off screen you know, in saying earlier, he's an anti-hero. I feel like he sets himself up to be kind of like, not a good person, but like someone that we really feel for and that we want to see come out on top. I do want to see him succeed, but there's a certain point in the telling of the story where I feel that kind of changes. I feel like Willard becomes, uh, I don't, I mean, I guess I, a bad person. I mean, he does become a character who it's really hard to root for him. But luckily... The performance is so entrancing that either way, I just don't really want to see it end. I mean, I think he becomes a shitty person, but Crispin Glover, I mean, my God, this performance is phenomenal.
0: I consider this like his signature role. Like, I mean, I understand he was, I mean, a lot of people would go Friday the 13th, four, or Back to the Future. You get your damn hands off of her now. But, <laughs> but I consider this like his, his, Chance to finally showcase what he's made of. And he does an exceptional job. It's one of my favorite performances in a horror film of all time. I mean,
2: time. there are, there are moments in this film when I, I think that my the hair was standing up on my arms because of his performance. Uh, I just did not know that he had this in him. And like I said, it's a shame horror constantly gets ignored by the Academy Awards. But this is one performance I yeah. really, really feel like should be talked about way more. In the uh, annals of great horror performances, because this one, man, this is a powerhouse performance. I mean, his facial, everything, facial expressions, ticks, everything he does is so impactful and you're just entranced like you said roger watching this performance unlike the first glimpse that we get of his mother as she lifts up from bed right her face goes right in the camera and this is the most haggard looking woman i've ever seen in my fucking life i could literally take this face roger and use it as the next mrs claus
1: mask oh my god she looks like leather face but on her face, like it looks like it, it looks like the skin that I imagined was removed to create Leatherface masks is is this woman's face? But she's her name's Jackie Burrows. I mean, like I'm gonna say, like we can say what we want. I'm sure that they did her up a bit. Like I, I'm I, I really hope so. hoping, I, I am hoping that this woman. Oh my god, can you imagine? But you know, she but she's fucking great at playing someone who. You want the viewer to hate. I mean, she absolutely. You know, oh my God.
2: You know who she reminded me of? Who?
1: Zelda from the goddamn. No,
2: no, guys. You're going to. I think, I think, no, I think when I say this, if you guys have seen this movie, you're going to be like, oh fuck, you are completely right. She reminds me of like the old lady version of that little fucking bastard from the Babadook.
1: Oh, but aged yes. and haggard. <laughs> but yeah, scream. Yeah. Oh my god, that's so specific. <laughs> but but you're right. You are right. And I, you know, she is the antithesis of just everything I hate about aging. Like it just terrifies me that one day I will be this woman and I will be screaming to look at my son's softer, hard penis. Like I don't. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want to ever become this woman. But I mean, this means that her her performance is also quite strong against his. I don't really think there's a performance in this that I don't get kind of swept away by. There's another performance coming up here that I think is also stand out that we'll be talking about shortly. Someone that's always welcome in this house. I'll say that right now. We love him.
2: <laughs> but so so she calls him into the room basically to, to apologize huh. to him for being a bad mother. But she doesn't really get in any specifics that she's done, except the thing that she's truly apologizing for. She gave him an awful name, Willard. (laughs) And she thinks that that's an awful name. She thinks that's the reason why he hasn't had a um, (laughs) had a girlfriend or has been successful because his name is Willard. So right then and there, guess what this old broad does? This is a this is a 40 year old man. And she's like, guess what? Your name's Clark now.
1: (laughs) She literally changes his name. From now on, your name's Clark. Good night, Clark. <laughs> like, and
0: he has this look of just just complete like confusion on oh, him. Like, he deals
1: with this all the time. You know this man is on the end of his fucking rope with this woman. <laughs> like, god damn it. Like, you know he's trying. He's trying to love his mother. But every time she fucking changes his, his name, probably three times a week, it's probably been... Clark, Bill, Jasper, uh, Paul, like every time she tells him, I hate your fucking name because she hates him. She makes it very clear that he's a failure, that he should have a girlfriend, but he's alone. He has no friends. She just is berating this poor man. No wonder he parts his hair in the middle. I mean, like he is just so sad and I feel so bad for him in this moment. It, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, I'm somebody who, not to get personal, I had a mother who was very ill, extremely ill, mentally kind of went through, you know, the whole loss of her, you know, general state of mind um before she passed from cancer. So I, I had to do this at a fairly young age, kind of put up with this. And one thing about this performance, and not to get like strangely personal, but like um it gets like that. Like honestly, one of the things that pulled at my heartstrings is that That Like the moment you mentioned earlier when she just starts screaming on the steps, I mean, it gets like that. It's like at times taking care of a child, a child mentality, um, but a frail older person's body. I mean, God, if anything, it really is just kind of shocking that they go there um, the ways they do. Some of the things she says, um, how invasive she is in his personal space as well. This woman, even though she's frail and decrepit and dying, he can't avoid her, and he feels indebted to her. Um, And that is a really strong aspect of of what defines him, is this feeling that he's just beaten down by life. Um, And this relationship with his mother is extremely toxic. So in that sense, alone, it makes for a very sympathetic angle for this character.
0: Yeah, definitely. And at, at first, at least as a viewer, at least for myself, you kind of don't feel weird or creeped out when he starts developing this connection to the colony of rats that he finds you find you. I mean, I felt a sort of like kind of just a little bit of twinkling of happiness. Like there's something that's making him smile. Is it the right thing? I don't know.
2: The next day he goes to work and when he gets to his office, he finds just this pleasant looking woman sitting at his desk. And so he, and this is kind of the first glimpse that we get of him really, even outside of his mother, not being able to stand up for himself because he can't even properly tell this woman that he, that she is sitting at his desk. He just kind of stands there and stammers and she looks at his, you know, she tips, tips open his nameplate on his desk and said, is that you? And he kind of just shakes his head. And then that rough looking broad that works at the office.
1: Barb. Barb. Yeah. <laughs> Barb. She yeah.
2: comes over and she's like, he wants to see you. And Willard's like, uh, there's somebody sitting at my desk. And she's like, well, maybe that's what he wants to see you about. This bitch, this is a, a condescending bitch. She's mean to everybody. She's mean to Willard. She's mean to beautiful Catherine. Can we stop? Because I want to say this. Roger, did you, do you know there's a connection now between body double and Willard?
1: The listeners, listen, I fucking know what it is I'm going to tell you listeners right now And I'm going to tell you it's so fucking specific <laughs> But it makes me okay. so happy Because I know Troy loves it
2: so You happy. did not know this until I told you Before we started recording No,
1: <laughs> but, but I <laughs> I'm just. I'm sorry. I I can try to play along with it. Yes, Troy. I knew that there was another Miss America contestant. No, it's not Miss
2: America. Get it right. It's Miss
1: USA. Miss USA. God damn it. I'm sorry, Troy. Let me tell you, Kyle. Troy's got a thing about Miss USA pageant. Not even winners, just competitors. He's he's he is he idolizes them. I think at one point Troy wanted to be (laughs) one. And so, so at this point in the game, whenever we got a goddamn... (laughs) Beauty pageant queen among us, <laughs> beguiling us with her uh, presence. Um, t- Troy gets all giddy like a schoolgirl, just like he is now. Tell us who she is, Troy. <laughs> it's <laughs> Laura Herring. It's Laura Herring, oh,
2: Miss God. USA 1985. It's the it's the se- it's the second film in two weeks we've covered with the Miss USA because we had the beautiful um, <laughs> Miss USA from Body Double, Deborah Shelton.
1: You're glowing. <laughs> You're glowing over it, Troy. I'm so happy for you. Well, okay, I mean, but
2: but other film. Film connoisseurs will know her from Mulholland Drive. She starred opposite Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. Obscure horror film fans will know her from her film debut, which was a couple years after she won the Miss USA title. She was in Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Those full pouting lips. And I got to say, man... How, how lovely is she? No wonder she's the fairest in all the land. Uh, what year was it, Toronto, not, it, was It was
2: 1985. She was Miss Texas.
1: Miss Texas. Oh, my God. She's just lovely. And she has this um, delicate demeanor. She's so gentle with Willard. Um, if I have any gripes about the film, it's the way that a few characters were either Written in a way that I felt they were extremely disposable and should have been consumed by rats. Or or that there was something there that was explored, but I think could have been explored even further. And I think with her character, she is so soft and kind to him when she kind of starts to realize the mistreatment going on in the workplace. Um, I wanted like three more scenes with her. I really did. I think that she was underutilized, um, which is a shame because she does bring a really nice balance of kindness to what is a very cruel world <laughs> that Willard lives in. It's cold, it's dreary, and it is cruel.
0: Yeah. I think, and I'm with you on that, um, I, I there are a couple of moments, at least when I first saw this, where there are times where you forget that she's there but when she does pop up, it's a very big like, beacon of hope. And um, I think they minimized her purposely to focus on him being surrounded by all of these cruel characters and to focus on him gravitating towards these rats. Um, still would have liked to see just a couple more with her, though. I, I think that would have
2: helped. Yeah, I also find kind of the res- her resolution, her character's resolution to be somewhat unsatisfactory compared to how she's been throughout the rest of the film. But we will get there because that comes in the end. Uh, but yeah, great. I mean, she is the only person that shows um, Willard any sort of kindness or compassion throughout the whole movie. And right away, you can tell that she is drawn to him. She has the personality, I believe, that... Attaches itself to people that are loners and that are kind of down, dour individuals. And she recognizes that. And then she also recognizes how his office workers treat her from that barb. Now that tells Willard, he needs to go see the boss to this fucking boss, Mr. Martin, that he goes into see. And can we just say horror fans will know Mr. Martin predominantly from what remake? Texas
1: Chainsaw Motherfucking Massacre.
2: I feel like it's Arlie Ermy. I feel like he, ever since he was in Full Metal Jacket, he has been typecast as a very specific character. And that very specific character is an asshole, despicable asshole that just screams at the top of his lungs. He does it phenomenally.
1: But in this film, I've got to say I feel this might be my favorite performance from him because while he does certainly have moments where he screams and he yells and he gets angry, a lot of his pointed anger that you come to find uh, towards Willard is delivered with a, with an air of cockiness and collect and control. And um, he's very... Um, he's always very manipulative and he always likes to have himself in a place where he thinks he's on top. He thinks clearly thinks the world of himself and uses that status and that stature to demean Willard. And I mean, some of the things he says to him, even when he's not screaming, when he's just delivering his dialogue so very well, um, some of the things he says are just horribly cruel. And my God, does he do a good job of creating a phenomenal villain who is more mentally destructive than physically in any sense. Well I think you're
2: right because this this particular character definitely in the hands of the wrong actor could have been a complete over-the-top character. I feel like Arlie Emery's performance here is so and this is going to sound weird because in a sense it is over the top, but it's a very natural, believable performance. Like you believe that th- you believe this character wh- is who he is 100% and you just fucking hate this guy. The, 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 the way he delivers some lines that, it, that where he he's doing it in a way that we at the audience know how fucking condescending and cruel he's being, but he's delivering the line in a way to make Willard think that he's being compassionate. It's, you just want to punch this guy in, in the face. Uh, And it starts with this scene when he goes into the office and Willard's like, uh, he asks Willard, who is that girl at your desk? And Willard says, I don't know her. And his response is, well, you should know her because it's your fucking fault she's there. And he launches into this thing about how He's a horrible employee. He's, he's so backlogged on purchase orders that it's causing stress for everybody else because they can't do their job until he gets the purchase orders entered. And Willard is like, you know, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry, but my mother is sick. And he says, oh, so it's your mother's fault. And you just want to be like, dude. And then he starts launching into this thing, telling Willard he needs to put his mother in a care facility and sell the house.
1: Uh, when he tells him he has to sell the house, it, it's... Hmm. it's really easy really fast to dislike this guy but he is so unreasonably cruel towards Willard and when it becomes apparent it's for these selfish reasons because Willard you find out is like grandfathered into the company through his father's involvement it's clear that he's not only trying to fire Willard because of his performance, he's really just trying to fire him because he wants the company to himself. He wants that control. He doesn't want Willard attached to it. Willard is simply attached because of his father's involvement. So, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons to despise this guy. But, you know, you're right, in the hands of the wrong actor, this could have been so over the top. And, And there is something so believable about Arlie Army's per- performance here that I, I really just get caught up in it. Um, his inevitable death sequence is a death scene where I finally get to see a, ca- a character get their just desserts. Like, you know, Troy, recently I've said several times, like, I wish this character would have gotten what was coming to them. Thank God this is a character in this film that I feel like, my God, his outcome is so well deserved. I'm excited to get to that. So
2: Willard, again, deeply apologizes, and he tells um his boss, he's like, you know what? I'll make it up. I'll stay later, and I'll catch up, but I got to go. And of course, this causes his boss to go into a even more explosive little tantrum, and he screams at Willard at the top of his lungs in front of all the other employees about how big of a piece of shit he is. And he has this line that is very pointed foreshadowing that says- I will not allow myself to be devoured by all those other rats because of
1: you. Oh my, I mean, really hitting on the nose there. Like, that line is so heavy-handed, but I love it. I mean, the tone of this movie makes that palatable for me. Because that line could have also just felt kind of cheesy, but this whole movie knows exactly where it's going. Little things to acknowledge up to this point. Some of the fucking cinematography... The shot of him holding the briefcase where the camera moves down to his hand. I mean, that seems very ahead of its time for a 2003 low-budget horror film, reasonably low-budget horror film. I think here you get to see some really cool usages of motion uh, and unique uh, angles and so forth at play. I did appreciate that as well.
0: Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of really, I want to say like, a lot of the shots in, in the movie produced like this clammy feeling that uh, that that helps with the sense of Willard being like closed in and feeling like he's in some sort of a box that he can't figure his way out of. And the cinematography is perfect and, and with the uh, the saturated and, and like sort of um, bleaker color palette that's used here. It really helps accentuate that.
1: I feel like I'm I'm in the fucking West Wing of the the Castle in Beauty and the Beast. Like, where they're like, (laughs) don't go to the West Wing. Like, everything about this movie
0: just feels so, like, dreary. And oh my god, it's just... Very monochrome, greenish-gray. Very small, very tiny.
2: Yes. Even the office building that they work in is so drab and colorless.
1: It's the whole world. It's the whole environment. It's everything. It all feels... Just very sad. Uh, The only aspect that at times doesn't is Catherine. So, I mean, what a great art designer they had to have on this fucking film. Like, whoever came up with this aesthetic, the look, the costuming, it's very intentional.
0: The cinematography, uh, the cinematographer was Robert McLaughlin, who also, very interesting to note, did Final Destination 1 and 3 and the Black Christmas 06 remake.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense,
2: yeah. This must be one of those, you know, they they love to work together, and they obviously work very well off of each other if they were able to do the cinematography, this great for this film and the Black Christmas remake. So, again, get these two together and let them do something else. It's been, how many years has it been since the Black Christmas remake? Get over it. We got that new piece of shit to be mad at now. (laughs) (laughs) okay so after work he goes to the store to get different rat traps and the ones he um settles on are like these glue strips so that night he goes out and he he goes down in the basement i'm sorry that night he goes down in the basement and he sets them all over the floor and goes up to bed and he is awoken that night by a scream wheel. He hears a squeal from the basement. So he runs downstairs and he sees that there is this poor white rat caught on this sticky trap. And you know, I've never been a fan of these types of of mouse or rat traps because these are cruel. These are cruel. And this just hammers home, like this scene just kind of hammers how cruel this is. You know, um, there are more humane ways to get these pests out of your house than getting it stuck on a on a rat trap and having it basically starved to death while it's stuck on a piece of paper. Willard recognizes this. You can tell he's, once he sees this poor rat scurrying around squealing, he has a flash of regret across his face. So he goes and gets the rat and he takes it upstairs. it to the bathroom and he puts vegetable oil on it because he reads in the directions. That's how you can get the stickiness to not be so sticky. So he literally has this cute little rat that he pours vegetable oil on and is massaging it until it comes off of the, the trap. In the meantime, this old bitch of his mother comes pounding on the door.
1: What are you doing in there? Oh my God. This woman needs needs to chill the fuck out. She, she is so omnipresent. He can't fucking escape her. And then this, this moment coming up where... He's like, I'm using the restroom.
2: No, no, he doesn't. Because this this struck me because it's so childlike. What he says is, I'm going potty.
1: He does say he's going potty. or are right. And I
2: thought, oh. Yeah. But then. Okay, this dude.
1: Then the woman proceeds to respond. There's a pause. And then she goes, is it loose or hard? <laughs> Let me see. I'm still your mother. Like she, this this brought, I mean I don't know what's going on with this woman. Again, I'm sure it's the the last <laughs> couple months of dementia. But um nothing to me is creepier than this sequence in which she tries to bust her way in to the bathroom out of curiosity whether he's playing with himself or not. Like, I mean, <laughs> how fucking uncomfortable is that? I did they need to take it there? Probably not, but okay, let's go.
0: I I, it, I actually think if she's asking if it's loose, I think she's talking about his stool. So I think she's trying to. Oh
1: God, brain. no! <laughs> I <laughs> thought she was talking about his penis. Okay, well, <laughs> I thought I thought there was some a, like a, like a, like Oedipus complex. At no, you
2: know what, Kyle? I got I had the same impression because he tells her she, he's not feeling good, and that she's yeah, like, "Is yeah, it yeah. loose or is it hard?" And I think she's talking about. But I know Roger loves penises, so I just wanted him to. <laughs> to in his mind, I wanted him to be no. happy that he thought this old broad was talking. I about
1: love. Penises.
2: So I was I wasn't gonna interrupt and say that I thought it was his. It's poop.
1: I love <laughs> incestual undertones in horror as we learned with Black Christmas. So my natural instinct is when he, he's got a thing for haggard women fucking their sons. You know he does. He threw it into Black Christmas for no fucking apparent reason. All of a sudden that old bronze mountain her yellow son in a rocking chair riding them back and forth. Like, you see a Juggs in the camera. I mean, unexpected. So for me to assume... <laughs> that this woman is asking or not if her son's diddling himself and wanting to help out, it seems very in line with the material well, she us before.
2: Writer, no, she does she does ask him basically if he was playing with himself too. That that is in there. But when she says it was hard or soft, I think she was talking about his st- his, his stool <laughs> because he comes out, he comes out of the bathroom and and you know he she he puts the rat in the pocket. And he comes out of the bathroom and he's following her into his. <laughs> into her room, and he has he puts his hand on her. She's like, what's that on your hand? He's like, oh, I just washed my hands. She's like, no, it's not. That's cooking oil. Oh, for God's sakes, you're too old for that. Get a girlfriend.
1: Oh, my <laughs> God. I wish he would just push that fucking woman down that spiral staircase. Like, she is everything I fear, man. I hate her. She's just so frail. And she's sweaty. And then, is this the part where she drops on the steps or does that happen later No, that happens oh my god i really i wish you would just knock her down the steps and be like she fell i'm i'm so sad my poor mother put her (laughs) to rest she doesn't want to live anymore i assure you moving on no so he, he
2: he takes the little white rat into his bed and you know okay i don't know maybe you have a fascination with uh, incestual relationships, Roger. Maybe I was reading too much into bestiality. I don't know. But like these moments, be- <laughs> these moments between this rat and Willard almost are uncomfortable because it's, it's almost uncomfortable because it almost feels like sexualized. Do you get that? Or is it just like he's looking at this rat and pet. He's like, oh, you're so pretty. Oh, I'm going to call you Socrates. And it's just like he's staring in this rat's eyes, and it's just like, hmm.
1: And this rat is is looking right back. <laughs> <laughs> looking, so I don't know.
2: Am I? Please tell me I'm not alone in feeling that way. <laughs> no,
1: listen. There is there is a certain element of. Um, I almost feel to a certain extent that at least the character of Socrates is like f- fetishized. I don't even mean fetishized like in a, in a sexual way. I mean like also like. Um, it, it seems like he has such an influence on everything he does, and like it, it seems as though he's almost worshipped or idolized. Like he's made, it's made clear that he is the the top of the the rat pyramid. Because I assure you, there's fucking more. Like get ready, there's a shit ton of rats in this movie, in case you were wondering. But it, it, he's treated as almost like a sentient being and I find it very strange and interesting aside from the almost sexual undertones I would say that there is this very strange connection between him and this goddamn rat it's just like I'm curious as to how far gone is the character of Willard I know he's sad I know he's lonely up to this point I really took him as being I don't want to say stable but like I didn't read into any crazy esque elements to this individual. You know, he doesn't write to me as somebody who's like suffering from something extreme like a, like a schizophrenia or anything like that. I just thought he was sad and depressed and lonely. So when this develops, it, it does take a really weird turn. It's for the better. It makes for a really interesting character arc, but I'm curious as to where this is coming from, this, this strange fascination he has with Socrates and this relationship he builds with all of the rats, it comes like kind of out of nowhere. I'm curious what nurtured that in him, developed that in him, made him feel comfortable forming this kind of relationship to begin with. Do you understand?
0: Maybe it was the sense of him not getting enough love as a child, which judging from that, the crypt keeper down the hall, he never got enough of. Um, I think it was the sense of him wanting to project Love onto another living creature. I think that's sort of what developed why him and Socrates get so close.
2: Yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. It, It did feel like it came pretty like it just came pretty hard hitting. There wasn't really any build up to it or anything. It's just like, boom, he sees the rat. The next thing you know, they're in bed together.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And one thing to say about Willard is like, my God, this man has some fucking anxiety. Like I have anxiety. And he was triggering me. Like I was watching this. I was like, oh, my God, like this rat's in my fucking house. I'm nervous. I'm sitting here trembling as I watch uh, Willard sweating. He's always sweating and nervous and uncomfortable. But there definitely are some major signs of, of mental illness in this guy, especially in his inability to communicate with people. And yes, the apparent anxiety at all times. But yeah, this this whole development of him suddenly talking to rats comes about fast and it comes about hard. And it, it doesn't have a lot of explanation. So if there's one thing I would have asked for, it was maybe a little more backstory to his fascination with rats. Um, a, a more drawn out development in his relationship with the rats. I, I would like to have seen that.
2: And I do think that's one thing the original does better, to be honest with you. So again... Check it out. So the next day at work, there's this scene where Willard is riding the elevator up to his office. And Mr. Martin comes and stops him. And basically, there's this whole scene where Mr. Martin, his boss, is telling Willard how much of a successful man he is. And he just bought a brand new Mercedes. And why did he need a brand new Mercedes? It's so people will take him seriously and realize that he is a successful man. And why is he a successful man? Because he's never late to work. And then he proceeds to padlock Willard in the elevator so he can't get out.
1: Seeing those fucking co-workers in the background just like awkwardly watching, (laughs) I was like, oh my God, this is so abusive, (laughs) it's horrible. Yeah, well, Catherine does
2: come out and let him out.
1: I love this moment. That little gesture of her just removing the lock and opening the door for him, like- when she's first introduced, she almost kind of busts his balls a little bit. You notice that? Like, I don't think she knows just how fragile he is right off the bat. Because when she's sitting in the desk, she's like, oh, used to be your desk. And she, like, tips the thing back and, like, show you know, hides his name. She's, like, kind of, like, razzing him a little bit. But it's pretty quick that she realizes just how cruel this environment is towards him. Um, and she steps up and tries to be o- openly and outwardly kind to him. You know, we said it before, but I would have loved to have just seen her character develop beyond this instinct to be kind, you know?
2: Yeah, and what I find interesting is that this is a woman that, throughout the film, progressively tries to show him kindness. She doesn't give up. She There's moments she comes to his house. She's she's talking to him. She's asking him how he is. So it's interesting to me, and I can't think this gets at what you're talking about, Roger, uh, in terms of why is he so connected to this rat these rats it's interesting to me that he see, he seems to be like choosing the rats to form a relationship with form a connection with over a human being a female at that who is actually actively trying to build a relationship with him and he throughout the most of the film is very just passive about he it he
1: doesn't even really acknowledge her at times. I mean, he literally just walks by her and barely gives her any words whatsoever. And that I think might kind of circle around back to what you mentioned being like the almost romantic undertones he has with the rats. He does prefer them over the human interaction. He does make them the priority over furthering this relationship with her. And so since I had a similar note to you, I almost feel like this is intentional. It was, she was placed there to make it clear that he was more fixated on the rats than any form of connection, building relationships between an actual human, which would probably be extremely helpful for him overall in the long run. You know.
2: So at home that night, he uh, he's obviously he's with Socrates, and he gives Socrates a newspaper, and he realizes that Socrates starts chewing it pretty aggressively. So he eggs him on and instructs Socrates to tear. This newspaper up, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all these other fucking rats come out. And we're talking, we're not just talking like three or four, we're talking a colony of rats just start pouring out of these vents. And he is instructing them to tear the paper up, tear this stuff up, tear this stuff up. And then, out of the corner of his eye, he sees a big, like, rat that's like twice the size of all the other ones chewing on a tire. And he says, well, look at you. You're a big fella. Big Ben. Hence, this becomes Ben the
1: Rat. The introduction of the rats in this sequence, I gotta say, it makes the rats horrifying. I mean, he's like, tear it.
0: Tear it.
1: Tear it. And they're just fucking gnawing into shit. And I'm like, oh my God, imagine that being fucking human flesh. He literally masters, within a matter of moments, how to... Guide and instruct the rats to eat through shit. I don't know how he develops this ability. I really don't care. I think it is a very well executed sequence. Um, and it definitely makes the rats seem very um intimidating. I mean, he himself is not necessarily intimidating, but seeing what these rats can do and the fact that he can command it, yeah, I I I, I definitely buy into it. Um, I really like that this is his kind of story arc. This is where he becomes this almost villainous figure with the rats being his goddamn like weapon of choice. Absolutely. Sign me up for it.
2: Yeah. It seems like he's very specifically training them for a purpose. And then after he trains them to chew all this stuff, he then is able to command them to get into these satchels that he has. And they he he's like in and they all go scurrying into these satchels. It's a quite a it's it is a disturbing image to be sure. It really is.
1: Do either of you know? This is 2003. I'm really fucking curious. How much of this was actual trained animals versus how much of it was digital? Because I'm I mean, there are shots up coming up here that absolutely, without a doubt, in my mind have to be digital. But whatever is digital here is at least from what I saw, it's pretty fucking good.
0: So this is straight This is straight from IMDb, and I remembered this um, ever since I read it. So I have it pulled up. Over 500 rats were used in the film and subjected to extensive training before being put on set. The rats were set into different categories for the actions they would perform.
1: You're telling me that, that this is a majority, uh, just real fucking rats doing some of this crazy cuckoo banana shit?
0: Those are real rats. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for
1: movie. that alone, this is a great fucking movie. Because the the shit these rats do, like I said, now yeah. they're intimidating. They're smart. I mean, they are listening to commands. Um, filming this, I have no idea how some of these scenes were executed because the volume of rats is just insane. But it makes for an amazing visual element to the film.
0: They had um, They would ink on the underside of their tail uh, numbers. So the trainers and the, the 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 crew and everything could keep track of them, of which rat was doing which action.
2: It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, they say never to work with children or animals. So can you imagine being on this set and having to work with 500 rats and trying to get everything to go smoothly and all the shots to go smoothly?
1: And It's just such a massive aspect of the film too. And the fact that they managed to make it what seems to be a majority, if not almost completely uh, practical. I mean, this is it, buddy. This is the kind of shit I love to see from from a filmmaker, from a filmmaker and his team. The fact that you opt to go for these kinds of practical real moments, in this case, this shows exactly why that pays off, because the fact that none of these things appear to really be digital, if, if any, that transcends. It, it transcends here. It really is clear, and it makes for these real moments between him and these fucking rats.
2: It also says Joaquin Phoenix and Macaulay Culkin turn down the role of Willard. Interesting, because I can't picture either one of them as, as Willard. Kristen, Crispin Glover just nails
1: nails it completely. Uh, yeah. Well, nobody plays creepy and awkward like fucking Crispin Glover. He's
0: perfect. Well, Joaquin came close with Joker. While I was watching Joker, I was getting parallels between this and Willard. Uh, so I can see him, but Macaulay Culkin, definitely not.
2: Yeah, oh yeah. From those two, Joaquin would be the much better choice. But I think Crispin Glover owns this role. And again, it boggles my it boggles my mind. It's not talked about more. This performance is not talked about more. So the next day at work, Mr. Martin yells again at Willard, like loudly in front of the entire staff telling him he's losing a week of pay because he's late constantly and if he doesn't like it you can quit and you know willard's humiliated so and you know of course Catherine's looking on in, in sympathy so willard sneakily gets into his rolodex and flips through it to get mr martin's address and he pulls it from his rolodex so we know where this is leading right
0: well, the scene with them tearing apart the newspaper and Big Ben tearing apart that tire—it's only inevitable.
1: But still, I think it moves pretty fast that all of a sudden this man can control that the this volume of rats. I mean, this is a superpower. I think, isn't there a isn't there a rat girl? I'm pretty sure DC Comics has a rat girl, and this is the male version of of that. Um, truly impressive that this man. Can control and influence these rats so quickly. I imagine this would take years of training.
0: He does it in five minutes.
1: He does it in five minutes. I mean, I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. I just, it, it blows my mind. I don't know if I can fully grasp uh, or accept his controlling of rats, but for the sheer aspect of entertainment, I am going to go along with it because I very much enjoy what he's capable of doing with them.
2: What he does with them is he goes home, he rounds them all up, gets them in the satchel, and heads over to Mr. Martin's house so that he can let them loose and chew their way through the garage and go into the garage and gnaw the new Mercedes that Mr. Martin was bragging about. Gnaw the tires until all of the tires pop.
1: The rats are the star of these moments, to be honest. Like He's great. But like what these rats do, like you see these rats chewing through fucking rubber. Then they go through these little holes. They start chewing through the tires. Uh, and it's, again, real fucking rats doing all of this shit. Big ones, little ones. Big Ben is the size of a fucking cat. They literally like pop these tires. And it's just, again, uh, impressive, impressive. The word impressive keeps coming up in my vocabulary. But it blows my mind that they managed to pull this off with these animals. Well, there's this moment
2: when he's at home and, and he sees Ben trying to get into the bag to go with him. And he's like, no, Ben, you can't go. If you get in there, nobody else will be able to fit. Well, then when he gets to Mr. Martin's house, he opens one of the bags and he realizes Ben is in there. And I want to know this as well, guys, because this is this is nagging at me too. So I want to know your guys' opinion on this. Why do you think it is that he instantly does not like Ben the Rat. Ben the Rat seems to like, again, much like Catherine, want to form a connection with him. Um, and we know that Ben the Rat is jealous that he has, you know, he's picked Socrates, but Ben the Rat, cute little thing, uh, but is always trying to to be friendly, to trying to, you know, f- like I said, form a relationship. And Willard wants nothing to do with it. And in fact, he just seems to despise this rat. And I was trying to figure out like why.
0: I think it's a dominance thing. I think he sees Ben as intimidating Socrates in an indirect way, and he doesn't want anything to happen to Socrates. So that may be why he comes off as a little deceitful or uh, despiteful, spiteful to him. Other than that, it just seems like, I mean, it it, it seems maybe Willard is, is thinking like he's trying to take over. Uh, he's trying to gain this entire territory. He's trying to maybe gain control over something that I've gotten control over. And I don't want that to happen.
1: Yeah, Willard does seem to be in a place where nothing in his life, he has nothing in his life that he has an actual grasp or control over. So when he gets control over these rats, I think he very much does bask in the power of it all. He likes being in a place of power, for once in his life. And so when it comes to Ben, who is intimidating in his own right, who the rats respond to and listen to and, you know, work alongside, um, I think Willard, both in what you're saying, Kyle, you know, that he's intimidated for Socrates. He's also, he himself is intimidated because Ben, when when Ben does not get what Ben wants, Ben rebels. And Ben proves himself to be a, a rather capable and problematic rat. And so Willard, I think, gets to a point where he's actually intimidated by Ben. Like, there is there is a certain point where Willard has, again, no control over everything. But for this moment in time right now, he thinks he's in power, and I think he loves that. So to Ben, he likes being able to tell Ben to be put into his place because he's never had that ability before.
2: That makes sense. That makes sense. I just was wondering, like, why was there such a, a strong initial like I said, dislike for this particular rat that is immediate. But yeah, so the rats go into the garage, pop all the tires. When the tires explode or or pop, uh, Mr. Martin actually hears it. So comes running out. And so uh, Willard has to round up all the rats back into the satchel and takes off running. And there's a scene where this like little Pomeranian comes barking at him and won't quit barking at him. And he gets so freaking frustrated. He's like, Fine. You want to see what's in the bag, you stupid little dog? And he picks this Pomeranian up and throws it in the bag. And initially I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, no. (laughs) But then he he walks for a few steps, opens the bag, and the Pomeranian jumps out. It's fine.
1: I thought that these rats were going to eat this fucking Pomeranian. I was like, he's going to open the bag and there's going to be nothing left but bones. I was waiting for it. I'm so happy that fucking puffball of a Pomeranian made it home okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. But then they,
2: they they leave it alone, which is kind of weird for a scene that happens here pretty shortly because they don't kill this Pomeranian, but they have no problem killing another animal, which we will get to.
1: Yeah, that is worth acknowledging because I do think we're about to see um, not a decline in the rats, but a decline in his control over the rats as they become more powerful and I do think that was again almost intentionally placed. Right now, they did not eat the Pomeranian, uh, but I think by the time they eat this other animal, they would have eaten that Pomeranian. You know what I mean?
2: So the next day at work, everyone's laughing about Martin's carbs tires being slashed. And when Martin walks in, he overhears one of the workers say that, "Oh, it's probably him that pissed in the in the driveway when he saw that all of his car his tires were slashed." And Mr. Martin's response is You think it's funny, don't you? Well, I had to take the subway. How would you like that, Mr. Fox? I wouldn't like that at all, sir. (laughs) And then he looks at Barbara and he's like, I
1: need a foot massage. Oh my God, that poor Barbara. No wonder she's so cynical. You brought that up earlier, Troy. You're like, this woman's a miserable bitch. Well, her sexist pig of a boss is making her rub rub his goddamn feet. So that's not normal in the workplace. That's something that could nowadays be a Me Too movement. So uh, yeah, no wonder that woman is so miserable. Uh, um, Yeah, when he says that, I'm like, okay, this
2: is inappropriate. This would not fly. I don't think this would have flown in 2003. Definitely wouldn't fly now. That night, Willard is in the basement and he's telling all of the rats that he cannot afford to take care of them anymore. He can't afford to feed them and that they need to go find a new home. And Ben is up sitting on the counter and gives Willard a dirty look. I don't know where they got this rat from, but this rat's facial acting is pretty damn good. This rat shoots some stink eye pretty well.
1: Oh, this rat scares the shit out of me sometimes. Those little black eyes just looking back at me. I'm like, holy shit, this rat's going to eat the fuck out of me.
2: Yeah, because Willard's like, Ben, you go take the others and you can take care of them. Uh, But he takes Socrates upstairs with him and he tells Socrates, you're not going anywhere, Socrates. I hate everyone but you. And this is the moment where he goes upstairs and he finds his mother laying on the steps. And she begins to freak out at him because she thinks
1: that he was
2: talking about her.
1: She's like, you can't feed me. You want to get rid of me. Is this the moment where you see her, t- her big fat toe come into play? There's that shot of her f- delicate foot stepping down on the carpet, and there's this big old black toenail hanging off of it. Scariest shot in <laughs> the goddamn movie. It's the scariest thing in the movie.
0: You hate me. You want to get rid of me.
1: Oh, she's so wild yet frail. Like This woman is just like so angered. Well, then she spits blood on him.
2: And he says, I, you got to get to the hospital. And this is when she starts screaming, this horrible scream that reminded me, like I said, of the kid from the Babaduck, just going, Aah! Aah! and he, he gets her to bed and puts her to bed. And there's this moment that night when Ben crawls into bed with Willard. You know, Ben's just trying to chill. He wants to sleep in bed with, with Willard. And Willard's like, absolutely not. Picks him up by the tail and throws him in the basement.
1: I almost said this earlier, but the the mother looks to me like Zelda from Pet Cemetery. Uh, and I really, at that moment when she was on that staircase having that fucking attack, I just was praying to God he would right hook her to the face. Like, it just really was deserved at this point. Like, sometimes some people need to be knocked out. You know, when women are having panic attacks on airplanes in the 50s, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the scenarios where elderly women are apparently on staircases. Um, spiraling into Alzheimer's Uh, in this case I wouldn't have blamed (laughs) of course I don't mean any of this listeners let's be clear Alzheimer's and dementia are a horrible thing but this movie does not paint these people in a good light and I just have to say (laughs) she makes me mad again and I gotta put that out there
2: I do like that there is this moment when uh, Willard throws Ben back in the basement and slams the door Cuts to his mother and her eyes shoot open. So she hears the basement door slam, which then in turn sort of makes sense what Willard discovers in the morning. When he goes downstairs in the morning, this fucking kitchen is now full of rats. They're everywhere. They're going through cereal boxes. These things are everywhere. They're going through the cupboards. They're shitting on the floors. (laughs) Well, then he, he... sees that his mother as he approaches kind of the the door to the basement, he sees that his mother is lying there dead on the basement stairs and rats are like crawling all over her. And he looks up and Benson on the counter on on one of the counters. And he's like, Oh, you think you're pretty smart, don't you? But you know what this means? This means they're going to come for her and then they're going to come for me. And that means they're going to find you. And this Ben thing is just like staring at him with those black eyes, but the mother's dead. And there's this moment where a rat comes and tries to bite her foot.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to say something about this mother's death. I've disliked her quite a bit from day one. Um, I really would like it. If I could have seen the moment in which she died, I get how they execute it. Um, I, I think it's a fine sequence but I really wanted for that character to see the moment of I'm assuming she opened the door she saw what was thousands of rats and she just had a fucking heart attack and died I wanted to witness that for myself cuz I because of this woman um I didn't get that but I do still fucking love the visual of her dead body just covered in rats like kudos to this poor actress I mean imagine being like okay we're bringing in the rats oh, okay there's 400 of them well, okay <laughs> Like just waiting for these rats to get just <laughs> filling into the room, spilling in and running all over me. I mean, good for that woman that she, I hope she got paid well for that sequence because it's terrifying. Um, and yeah, that visual of her open eye with the rats just running across in front of her face on the steps. I mean, it, it's a wild visual.
2: The stuff of
1: nightmares.
2: Well, the paramedics come take the mom's body away. Socrates comes to console Willard and Willard tells him, you're the only friend I've ever had. And then it's kind of sad. This reminded me of Mrs. Claxton's funeral from the Golden Girls because nobody shows up. But no, so nobody's at this mother's funeral. And so he's there crying at, over her casket, telling her how much he's going to miss her. And he even gets Socrates out and puts Socrates in her coffin to say goodbye However, at that moment, one person does show up. And it's
1: Catherine. Sweet Catherine. Sweet Catherine is trying so hard. What do you think? I'm I'm really not thinking that Catherine is coming from a place of romance here. Do you think she is genuinely trying to be his friend? Do you think it's coming from a place of like guilt because she's in the workplace? What do you think her overall um, driving factor is with her trying to be so kind to Willard.
0: I think, it, I think it's, it's more of a sense that she sees a very lonely figure who looks very harmless and doesn't quite understand why everyone is so hostile towards him. And she wants to sort of be the change and show that there are good people. That do exist, and he just needs to experience more of that. I I, I can understand where the guilt aspect is coming from, because everyone at that office is a complete dick. But I, I think it's more so out of compassion than it is any underlying motive.
1: I like that better. I like that it's not like a, a romantic thing. You know, it's hinted at that she could be a romantic interest almost for him. In any other movie, I think she would be, but I feel he's so goddamn distracted in Troy, like you said, madly in love with the rats, specifically with Socrates, that she makes herself so available and he hardly pays this attention to her whatsoever. So I I find it interesting that her her character could be such a beacon of light for him. He just chooses not to see it, you know?
2: Yeah, which is very interesting. Like I said, he is, like you said, he's fixated on this relationship with the rats while ignoring a, what could be a, a very positive human relationship. And again, we talk about, you know, everyone in the film being shitty at the same moment that Catherine comes to the funeral to check on him this attorney shows up and this attorney has some pretty bad news for his parents did have a trust fund for him, but they were living on it. And when his dad died, debts had to be paid. And in fact, many debts did not get paid and there's litigation going on. So his mother had to refinance the house where he suggests Willard either sells the house or declares bankruptcy. And this is when Willard freaks the fuck out.
1: Oh, my God, this moment. This is the moment that makes me think of Charlie Angel's full throttle. When he screams like a, sh- a shrill womanly, like, ah scream. Like he, only this, he gives a full monologue like that. But um, I love seeing him just fucking break. Because understandably so. Like, at this point, you know what? I'm kind of hard on Willard. I think he makes some bad choices, but I fucking get it. People are shitty. This attorney, you come to find out, has been hired to come in to the fucking funeral. Of his mother, by Mister Martin, his 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 boss. I mean, that's horrible. No wonder he's screaming at people. Oh, he's screaming at
2: the top of his lungs. This is this is one of the scenes that made the hair on my arm stand up.
0: This was the scene when I originally saw this that reached out and hooked onto me, and and I consider it the perfect. I don't know what word you would want to use, but like the central description of Willard like he he breaks and he just loses it and you do realize that w- with the house gone he you he, he's gonna have nothing left he 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 doesn't have no other family members show up in the movie or even spoken of so he has no one that we know of that he can go stay with and Catherine seems too new for him to want to ask for any financial help So you do feel the weight of the world sort of feeling on to his shoulders sort of pounding. And that's why he has this just scream. Yeah,
2: it's a it's a great moment. And then there's this moment when the attorney basically tells him, hey, you need to calm down. This could be your opportunity to actually have a decent life. So you need to calm down and make a decision. And Willard, all of a sudden, it's like a light switch goes off because he's like, oh, okay, thank you. And is very like back to it being his like reserved self. The attorney leaves and there's this moment where Willard looks out the window and sees the attorney shaking hands with that fucking Mr. Martin. So, you know, these two were in cahoots.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, that that moment made me so fucking pissed off. I knew it was coming. Like I knew he was gonna be involved in some way. But again, this guy just literally is at the funeral for his mother. And there's absolutely no hesitation whatsoever and Frank making a move to get this property because he even hinted before he wants to build apartments on it. So, you know, he's being completely selfish in this. So it, it, it does add so much weight to why Willard's kind of building up to uh, inevitably what he's going to do here in, uh, shortly, um, which is kind of like his master plan unfolding, I suppose.
2: After the funeral, Willard gets home and his house is consumed with rats. They are everywhere, everywhere. They're running rampant. Catherine again, shows up and she has a present for him, which is a cat that was given to her uh, when she lost somebody to help remedy her feelings of loneliness and loss. And this cat's named Scully. And it's such a cute cat. And You know, Willard obviously is a very hesitant to take it at first and says he can't take it. And the cat actually sees Socrates in Willard's pocket and is is trying to get to Socrates. And and Catherine's like, oh, look, she likes you. Just take her. Just take her. So she literally like pushes this cat on to Willard, which I thought was a little presumptuous this is kind of the one thing Catherine does that kind of irks me because of what happens uh willard's like can i put the cat inside and she's like "Yes, she's potty trained and i love the willard throws the cat inside and the very first thing the cat does is piss all over the floor
1: and then right after that it does this nice like pull away where you realize that the cat looks up and notices that holy fuck there are so many rats in this house. Like normally you would expect the cat to be like, I'm going to like take control of this situation and eat these rats. But the cat is instantly <laughs> terrified of this house. Like understandably so. There are so many rats and they get into motion pretty fast here.
2: Yeah. The cat runs into the living room and knocks the TV on. And I thought this was a fun little homage to the original films too, because the TV channel comes on and what song is playing is Ben, the Michael Jackson song that was written for the sequel to Willard. And Ben, the song by Michael Jackson, plays throughout this whole, literally this cat and mouse or cat and rat chase scene, right? As these rats are t- chasing this poor cat around the house and the cat, there's a moment the cat hides on top of a bookshelf and the rats chew the legs off and the bookshelf falls to the floor. The the cat has to run into the basement, this poor scully. It's trying to it's trying to run for its life. Gets up onto the ledge, and all these rats are just flooding in, and they're they're like on the floor below below this rat. And, and Scully sees the um, vent, and goes to make a jump for it. And when he gets to the or when she gets to the ledge, fucking Ben pops out and scratches the cat, so the cat falls down to the floor, and the rats immediately devour it.
1: This scene is rather masterful in its execution. Again, with the uh, impressive handling of these animals over the course of this entire scene, uh, the fact that this cat and those rats can coexist on camera in general is impressive. Um, This poor fucking cat is up to no harm whatsoever, Uh, just living, living its life, trying to be a therapy cat, apparently, for poor Willard, and is instantly hunted down and consumed by an army of rats. And it is very intense. It's very well executed. And the final moment when the cat drops to its death, you're kind of like, what did I just fucking see? Like, holy shit. Um, You get like a nice like shot of the cat dropping and going out of focus as the rats kind of like overwhelm it. Uh, it doesn't get it doesn't get gory or violent, but like the fact that you even just see this moment where you know for sure these these rats are fucking eating this goddamn cat, it's rather horrifying. Uh, it really is a scene that sticks out to you, and I mean, like I'm gonna think of this scene over and over over the next few months. I know it's gonna keep coming back in my mind because it's really just it, it's almost playful in its execution, but it's dark. Oh, it's so dark.
0: I think the song choice to have been right then and there is perfect. It it because it's taking I feel like because it came from 72, so it has this perfect sort of like buoyancy and easygoing like boat ride listen affair to it that perfectly overscores this very dark, suspenseful, haunting scene of this cat just meeting its demise
2: yeah it is an interesting song choice but i i love it i do love the song choice that was paired with this particular scene as dark and disturbing as i do find this scene because you're right roger this poor cat it's not this cat's fault that it's in this predicament you know it's catherine's fault she should have not brought this cat over and i find it interesting also that the cat's never mentioned again like it's not like willard goes in the house and starts calling for the cat so i wonder if he's well aware that the rats were going to kill it and and Catherine never brings the cat up, so this poor cat's in the scene to basically die and never brought up again. That evening, Willard goes into the office of the house and he finds the envelope that contains the dad's stuff that was on him when he died. And we do find out his dad committed suicide. And so he's pulling out of this corner envelope his dad's glasses, the ring a wallet, and then the pocket knife that he opens. And you can see there's still blood on the blade of this pocket knife. So I'm assuming this is what the dad killed himself with. And Willard goes to cut his wrist with it, but Socrates goes down and stops him. Ben is sitting on the bookshelf staring at him. And this is like kind of the moment where you really see that Willard and Ben are starting to have this very egregious relationship because I feel like Ben is like tired of Willard shit. Like Ben's like, I've tried to form a relationship with this dude, but he keeps picking that fucking white rat over me. So guess what? I'm going to start doing some shit.
1: A few things here. um, I I really want to give Socrates a moment of focus because what amazes me about his relationship with Socrates is Socrates is such the voice of reason and Socrates is often coming to the defense of Ben Like, I do feel like there is definitely tension between Ben and Socrates. Ben wants to have the kind of place of power that Socrates is assigned. But I do feel that when it gets to a certain point, what happens here coming up to Socrates, I do think that both Willard and Ben feel impacted by it. Because Socrates is very much in favor of Ben. There's the one point where Ben gets into the bag uh, and Socrates like runs down and joins him and gets in the bag as well, being like, okay, it's okay to take him to work. You should go ahead and let him come. I, it's so strange because it's such an evolved decision on behalf of Socrates to like be that voice of reason. Uh, they really crafted, for being a fucking white rat, they sure crafted one hell of a character out of this creature with so many moments making it seem to be... Like the angel, literally the angel on Willard's shoulder, um, to make you know obviously what happens coming up here soon that much more impactful. But it is impressive to me the kind of bond they're able to form between these two characters, mostly because of the, how well played <laughs> and well developed the character Socrates seems to be.
2: Definitely, I feel like the for for rats the characterization is actually pretty strong. You really do get the dynamic between Willard. Socrates and Ben. It's pretty distinct, and it's it's yeah, it's it's really well done. Uh, Willard that evening t- gets a cane, a wooden cane, and takes it to bed with him. And that evening, the door creaks open, and Ben just wants to get into bed. Willard wakes up and tries hitting Ben with the cane. Like this is the moment that Willard literally tries to kill Ben. Ben runs into the closet, um, back into a hole that that Willard sees that he's chewed through the closet to get in and out of the bedroom. Socrates doesn't approve, but Willard's like, you know what, we got to do this. So he tapes the hole back up. And when he wakes up that morning, he finds
1: that the cane has been chewed. How the fuck did this rat do this to this motherfucking cane? Can rats do this shit? Can rats do... Can rats... Eat eat canes. I mean, that was that looked like a sturdy cane. I mean, that did not look like that looked like a finely crafted man's cane. Um, and this rat manages to demolish it. I mean, it's like sawdust. It just crumbles on the bed. I was like, holy fuck! Imagine what this rat could do to a person's face. This rat is very intimidating, and at this point, Willard is intimidated as well. He's like, oh my god, that rat ate the fucking cane. He's back again. Shit.
2: I'm surprised Willard didn't hear Ben eating the cane. You'd think that would be loud, especially when it's right next to him in bed.
1: Ben is so maniacal. I wouldn't put it past him if he sedated. If he managed to slip a pill into Willard's mouth before he ate that cane, he just walks right up, drugs him. I mean, this rat is competent, capable, creating holes in walls. When holes are blocked, finding other ways to get in. Uh, eating canes. I mean, what can't this rat do? He is very threatening.
2: The next morning, Willard gets his satchel to go to work and Ben is in there and he ends up ultimately letting Ben go with him because Socrates says it's okay. Socrates hops into the satchel with Ben. So he takes them both to work and puts them in the back storage room, which bad decision. Bad decision. Like Every other time that he has taken Socrates to work, he's put him in his desk drawer. I feel like that was kind of the better choice here. But no, he puts him in this wide open storage room so anybody can run into them, which leads to what happens, which is pretty sad. Uh, He goes to his desk and finds a letter that he opens up, and it is a letter informing him that he no longer has a job, and here's a check for two weeks severance pay. He... storms into Mr. Martin's office who is on the phone. Willer doesn't realize he's on the phone. And so when he walks in, there's this like dialogue where Mr. Martin's like, yeah, I'll make this up to you. I'm going to take you to Disney World. (laughs) And Willer's like, what? And he turns around and realizes that Mr. Martin's on the phone with somebody. Uh, Out in the office, Barbara tells Catherine that they need some festivities around here. So to go into the, Back storage room and pull out the Christmas decor. And Catherine, being the badass that she does, and if she's fed up with these assholes, quits. She throws her keys at her, quits, and says, You can kiss my ass. I quit.
1: I thought this was a ballsy move for her. I appreciate that she's acknowledging what a miserable work environment this is for everybody, it seems, uh, but especially for Willard. I do feel like she quits because of how Willard is being treated. But my God, I mean, I'm sorry. It's hard out there on those streets. I I find it very difficult getting a job. Yes, this place of employment looks miserable. It looks so sad. There's no light. It looks like a, a like a cellar. Like they're working in a bomb shelter. But at least it's a fucking job. I don't know. I maybe I'm I'm too good of a work ethic. I put up with a lot of shit. But walking out like that on the job, my God, girls got some cojones. But you know, I do appreciate her yet again coming to Willard's defense. I wouldn't do that for anybody. I wouldn't give up my job for anyone.
2: Well, I also think it might be a little, it might've been a little bit easier for her to give up the job because I think it's hinted at that she's just a temp anyway. Because there's dialogue earlier on when Mr. Martin's like, oh, I'd have to pay you overtime, which is more than I pay for that temp. So I think that makes her quitting her job seem a little less maybe impulsive or daunting. You know what I mean?
0: Valid. Yeah, that's valid. This, this also not to jump over. This also leads. I, uh, we were discussing how amazing Arlie Ermey's performance is in the movie. I, I think that this moment between him and Crispin Glover is the best interaction. These two have and the real showcase to show just, I mean, yeah, he's been a real piece of shit this entire movie but i mean this is like the scummiest he can be and the audience is asking how, just how low can he stoop and he keeps stooping on lower and lower to different levels that you couldn't think of
2: oh i love uh, yeah I, I would agree with you this is the best interaction these two have in the entire movie because there is this level of just like arrogance disguised as compassion when he's dealing with uh, Willard, he tells him. So Willard, like, is screaming about how could he fire him? It's his father's company. He's like, no, it's not. Your father's dead. Your mother's dead. It's been my company. Uh, and Willard's like, you, you can't fire me. It's in a contract. And he says to him, sue me. You'll win. But you know what? With your two hundred dollar lawyer that you get, I'll get my four hundred dollar lawyer that tie higher two hundred dollar lawyer up in for years. And by the time you win. It'll be, you'll be too old anyway to even worry about it.
0: And I'll be dead.
2: Yep. And then Martin's like, you know what? Why don't you, uh, make me an offer. I'll buy the house. Make me an offer. Willard says, um, you know, he doesn't want to sell the house, but then he kind of starts having this breakdown, this like crying breakdown where he's like, fine, I'll sell you the house, but please let me keep my job. And I don't know, there's this moment because Willard is so emotional, like crying, full-fledged crying, uh, saying, please let me keep my job. And there's this brief moment, it's brief, but you see Martin like almost have a reaction of compassion, true compassion or sympathy, but before it goes anywhere, it's interrupted by Barbara fucking screaming that there's rats in the storage room. Because she's went back there to get the Christmas decor.
1: What comes up here is something I, I'm going to find a little difficult to talk about.
2: This is where the movie almost sort of lost me and definitely made me dislike the, the Willard character quite a bit.
1: Yeah. What happens here is um, it's, it's sad because... You know, you have w- what's going to be the death of the character Socrates. And, you know, this character has been this strange, like, positive presence throughout the whole film. Willard's about to lose what has become, like, his his lover and friend. And it really is handled in such a, a mean and nasty way. You don't see it, but what happens is when, you know, uh, Frank comes in with this broomstick and proceeds to smash Socrates into the corner of a wall. You hear the screeching. I mean, it's it's a tough watch. It's it's hard to get through the moment, and you don't even see what happens here. So I found that very sad. It affected me. It impacted me. I mean, that's what you want from a movie, isn't it? That's that's a good thing. But it, it definitely left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, just because you know I'm an animal lover, and I was I kind of knew something was going to happen to this character. But I almost feel in a way that Willard takes his anger out on all of the rats after this point. And the outcome here is not necessarily what I wanted to see from Willard. In fact, he takes a, a turn. I think of kind of what you're implying, Troy. This event, what happens here, causes him to take like a severe back turn and become a bit of a repulsive character for a bit.
2: Well, what I'm really uh, implying, yes, you are right there, but what I'm implying what I'm more kind of angry about is the fact that this whole movie, Willard has been talking about how much he loves Socrates, how he would never let anybody hurt Socrates, how Socrates is his only friend. He'd protect him always. And then it comes to this moment and he literally just stands there in the doorway, like a bumbling idiot, knowing what's going to happen. It doesn't even try to stop it. Um, That is kind of my issue. It's like, it's like a complete like 180 degree turn from, what we've been told this character his relationship with this rat is now it gets to this moment and he literally just watches. He doesn't do shit. He just watches. Like if that was me and I had that strong connection, you bet your bottom dollar, I would have charged that motherfucker and knocked that old bastard to the ground before he killed that rat. But no, he just, he just lets it happen. And he-
1: what do you think was the motivation for his decision to, not react? Because you can tell he's affected in that moment. But like both of you, why do you think Willard opts to not step up to the plate when something so massive happens? I mean, he's been talking the whole movie. You're right. He's been talking the whole time about how much this fucking rat means to him and how he'll never let any harm come to him. Well, now harm's coming to him. He does not step up to the plate. What happens here? What prevents it from happening?
0: I think it triggers... A shock reaction from him and it literally freezes him to be able to do anything to step in to save Socrates in time because he hasn't really experienced uh not only something like this happening in general but something like this happening to someone so or something so close to him
1: yeah I I also feel like he is being a bit selfish here to be honest I think that he doesn't Well, he thinks too much about what other people think of him. That's been pretty clear. He was just subjecting himself to torture in front of his boss. And then instead of standing up for himself there, he began begging for his job. He's not capable of really stepping up for himself or other things that are important to him. That's why he's going to lose the house. That's why he has no self-confidence. And that's why now he had the opportunity to save Socrates and he let his own personal insecurities and fears get the best of him and i think his reaction there was his realizing that but he was too scared to actually act upon it
2: yeah i mean i thought that if my thought my thought was okay are they are they insinuating yes that he is he's so afraid of confrontation he's been beat down his entire life and even in this most extreme moment he can't even stand up for himself is he that pathetic of a person because it's not like He hasn't lost people before he lost, you know, he lost his dad's committed suicide. His mother died. You would think at this point he would be able to, particularly if something he loved so much, like stand up for it and try to protect it. But he doesn't. So I guess, again, they're trying to paint how just pathetic and and beat down and emotionally damaged this character is. But then you're, you're right, Roger. Then it does lead him to a path of what do you want to say? I mean destruction and he does take it he does take it out on the other rats so he um barb's like oh and this fucking barb she's like oh he expects me to clean up this mess and willard's like no no i'll do it and so willard has to go and of course get poor bloodied socrates and ben is just sitting there at the top shelf staring down at it. and willard's a you know starts to cry and he's like what what could i do what could i do and then he looks up at Ben and he's like, what can we do?
1: The shot of poor little Socrates, like his little battered body, you know, it, it's laying there completely still. Oh, it made me so sad. I, I felt so bad. If anybody in this deserved to live, like one of my biggest gripes with the film, honestly, I'll say it right now, is there's a lot more people I really wanted to see die that do not die. I understand this film wasn't necessarily marketed as a body count horror movie, but... If you're going to give me some glorious sequences of rats, overwhelming cats, and inevitably people, I mean, of course I'm going to want more. And even Barb, I mean, come on, let him eat her. Let him, let him eat her. Give me two more deaths. Easy. The cops and Barb. I'm satisfied. Uh, You can find good motivation for that. Let him eat her. So I don't know why that didn't happen, (laughs) but uh, I don't know. I, I think that what happens here, you know, what this kind of sets off in motion is really the cherry on top of delicious Sunday. It is a several really phenomenal sequences coming up here that are deserving to be talked about and celebrated. And I wish this film offered just a pinch more of that because it's so very impressive what they do pull off with this last like 15, 20 minutes of the film.
2: Yeah, he gets home that night and he does put Socrates's body into his dad's urn, which is weird that they don't have this urn sealed uh, he just lifts it up and puts it in these ashes. I thought that was kind of odd, but then he loads up all of these satchels with rats and fills the back of this truck with them. I mean, he literally fills the back of a truck with rats. And of course he drives to the back to the office and in the office, Mr. Martin is still there. He's working half-assed, but then he decides it's cool to pull up some porn he's
1: looking at peekaboo.com everybody everybody's favorite website my uh first he looks at um what's it he looks at uh my my, wife my wife wife my my wife naked (laughs) and sees some leathery old women but then he goes to my 22 year old girlfriend and he finds a lovely um (laughs) uh, a buxom blonde who he can fawn over this scene phenomenal i mean the execution of this how they start introducing the rats into this moment some shots coming up here that blow my fucking mind. I mean, my reason for wanting more is just because when they do pull off some moments on the scale, my God, this movie succeeds in ways few have.
2: Oh God. Okay. So the, the shot of, well, while, while Mr. Martin's in his office, getting off to these peekaboo porn, Willard takes the elevator up to the floor where the office is at. And there is this incredible shot of the elevator opening and hundreds rats literally piled from floor to ceiling of this elevator come just running out and it reveals Willer just standing there with, with Ben on his shoulder just maniacally staring down the hallway. It is such a fucking cool, cool shot. It blew my mind.
1: Is this real? Is this? Are these real rats or is this digital? I can't imagine this being anything but digital. But Because lit, literally, Crispin is submerged in rats. Like, at first when the door opens, it's just rats and like his face, like half of his face. And then they all kind of like very strategically unpile and just go running down the hallway. If this is in any way, if any a- aspect of this at all is, is real animals, I am blown away. Because... It looks phenomenal. I mean, if it is CGI 2003, holy shit. Like, that is impressive. It is so well done. Um, This shot alone, I'm shocked we don't see on more, like, top 10 great moments in horror. You know, like, it is beautiful. It's a breathtaking shot. And it's extremely uh, intimidating. Uh, For the first time in the movie, Willard looks like a mastermind, like a villain, like an evil force. It's a shifting character.
0: From what I remember, because I do watch all of the extras that come on to the DVDs and Blu-rays, when they were talking about the making of the movie, I, I believe they said pretty much everything was was real. It was practical. So those are really, I mean, that, that's extremely impressive uh, to have those rats do that.
1: Whoever was in charge of the wrangling of the fucking rats, give them a crown. I mean, Jesus Christ, they deserve to be acknowledged because it, it is so impressive what they do in all of these sequences.
2: Oh, they need an Oscar category for rat wrangling.
1: For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, but the rats, they run down the hallway and they flood immediately into Martin's office. And he's like, oh, my God, look at all the rats.
1: Well, first, he's sitting there looking at Peekaboo. And in the background, it's like one rat, then two rats, then three rats on the couch. Like They start appearing. They're running behind him. He doesn't notice because he's horny for Peekaboo.com. <laughs> and then finally, like, yeah, he gets up, he turns around, and his couch is engulfed with rats. And he's like, oh, look at all the rats. Like, yeah, he's he's <laughs> taken aback, as you should be. Well, who is it
2: horny for peekaboo.com? Did you see that old broad on there with her tit with her jet ju- Saggy ju- leathery <laughs> knockers
1: just hanging, blowing in the wind? Uh but that and there's that one moment where he turns around to the noise and then he looks back and he goes to put his hand on his mouse and it actually is it's a rat. So it's a rat. I love that moment. I was like, Oh my god, this is so well thought out. Oh well, yeah, and he's like, Yeah, he, he
2: says look at all the rats, and then uh Willard walks and he's like, Yes, look at all the rats.
1: What a sight to behold. Fucking Crispin Glover walking in, opening the door, covered in rats. (laughs) I mean, like, and this whole, like, imagine having to film this whole sequence being either of these men sitting in this room filled with rats, partially covered in them. How they got through this scene and made it so fucking just well done, so well executed, so well acted, how they managed to pull this off as performers boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. I would be like, oh my God, there's so many fucking rats. I wouldn't be able to do it. But this is
2: Willard's moment to finally, this is what we've been waiting for this entire fucking movie is for Willard to finally snap and stand up to this fucking asshole. And boy, does he do it. He just unleashes about how, you know, you've treated me like shit. You killed my dad. You've tried to take my business. You're trying to steal my house and you killed Socrates. And Mr. Mars like, who the fuck is Socrates? <laughs>
1: Who the fuck is Socrates? That voice, I love it. Oh, I love him so much. Rest (laughs) in peace. Mm, Yes, rest in peace. We lost a good one. But he proceeds to, like,
2: start poking Mr. Martin with the um, same tool, the same broom handler, whatever it was, that he used to kill poor Socrates with. But... As we know, because we saw earlier, Mr. Martin has golf clubs in his office because he was practicing his golf swing. He grabs a golf club and is able to bash Willard in the head with him, with it. And Willard falls to the ground. So Mr. Martin runs out to the elevator and gets into the elevator just in time for Ben to hop on and attack him. And Willard, you know, walks back out to the elevator, sees Mr. Martin and like locks the elevator door and starts like poking at him with the uh, with the broom handle and then all of the other rats come flooding out and he commands them to tear him apart. And boy, do these rats start tearing him apart.
1: What a phenomenal conclusion to this character. Down to the shot of the elevator lifting away and showing his the visual of him engulfed with rats, you know overwhelmed by the rats and you just see the swarm of them. Uh, Again, it pulls away from the violence. It's not like you're seeing a ton of gore, but it's just so shocking, this volume of rats, that it's just so impressive seeing this. Again, this is a reason why I selfishly was like, oh, I wish I could have seen 10 more kills like this because it is horrifying to look at. God, they knock it out of the park with these moments. Um, I really wish there were a few more kills. I really, really do. But this moment's great. I'm just a little baffled. By what happens here between Willard and the rats, like suddenly, out of nowhere, it's like Willard intended to turn on the rats. His only friends, like, is this what I'm supposed to gather here? What is this character arc here?
2: He used the rats to his benefit. He used their friendship to kill his biggest foe. But then he literally he's the one that pushes the elevator to go down so that it, the rats or go downstairs and even says, in a very like cocky way, he's like, goodbye, Ben." And then he goes home. So he literally, his plan was to use the rats to kill Martin and then just like abandon them. But my thought is, I don't know, was he planning on like committing suicide or what was his plan? Because he goes home and like he throws this like pest bomb into the basement and we see that it kills a bunch of the rats. He goes, he goes down in the basement and sweeps, sweeps them up and puts them in like a burn barrel. And then he like wraps the toilet tight so the rats can't get through the toilet uh, and goes to bed and falls asleep. But I'm I'm trying to figure out like what was his like final plan here? Did he think the rats were really just going to leave him alone? Did he want to commit suicide? Like what was his ultimate final motivation? I couldn't figure it out.
1: Yeah, I'm thrown off by that, too. I am like I'm baffled by what his um what his end all goal is here like yes so he's had his boss consumed by rats that alone is impressive the fact he even managed to orchestrate that um but then he leaves the rats the rats who helped him in this murder and i guess i'm just baffled i thought he looked at them as friends or i guess maybe somewhat as a nuisance he wishes he had more control over them i just wish i understood more his reasoning his, ra- his rationale when he chose to turn on them. I don't know. Kyle, what do you think? Like, what is his mentality here? What causes him to t- suddenly turn on the rats like that?
0: So looking at everything leading up to this, I think the death of Socrates is what causes him to kind of say, fuck it. I have nothing left. I have no job. I I, I have no Socrates. I have no mom. I have no dad. I have no nothing. I think at this point he considers, well, whatever happens, happens. If uh, the rats are there and he somehow gets caught, it it is what it is. I I am leaning more into the theory now that he was possibly maybe considering suicide after the fact. I'm not really entirely sure, but I I, I think it's more of the fact that he, he just kind of snaps. And he realizes, well, I have nothing left, so why not?
1: Part of what I'm thinking here, honestly, is that, you know, he said to Socrates, he's like, you are my only friend. I hate everyone but you. Losing Socrates, I think you're, you're kind of right there. I think now his goal more than anything is to get revenge, but it's at the cost of the rats. I think other than Socrates, the rest of the rats he looked at as below him. And so now that he's turned on the rats, they're kind of like, go fuck yourself. Like, we helped you, but we're not indebted to you. The, the rats choose to turn on him now because of this. So I think he really thought like after this, he could basically just, you know, gas the rest of them off and be fine um, and have control again over his home, over the house. But fact of the matter is, is like these rats have been working for him, but they're not feeling like he's their leader per se. He's not shown the ability to lead or to, step, step up to the plate. They look to Ben for that. If anything, Ben is the one who's proven himself to be more dominant overall, uh, versus Willard who has failed to keep Ben under his control. And so now the rats, if anything, they, they look to Ben, especially because Ben leads them to success. Whereas Willard has turned on them. Right.
2: The next morning cops show up knocking on his door, he doesn't answer. He waits for them to go away. But then there's another knock and it's Catherine. And he actually uh, creaks the door open and takes a look at her. And she tells him about Martin being dead, that they found him. Apparently something ate him Something ate him, or they don't know what happened to him, but he is dead. And all he says is, I'm hungry. He wants to go get something to eat. He says he needs to grab his coat. When he goes to grab it, it's bloody. So he has to go look for a different coat. She comes in to use the restroom. She's not phased at all that she has to pull duct tape off the fucking toilet to use it. <laughs> I think I would go in there and see the toilet duct tape shut, and I would be like, "Uh, I'll, I'll hold it.
1: I mean, there's something he said. This woman, if I, if I were this woman, and if I walked into this house and I saw any of this, like the tape into the toilet, the disruption, um the 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 rat shit, I'd be like, there's no way I'm peeing in this house. I mean tell me that house doesn't smell fucking It has to. Disgusting. It must smell absolutely repulsive. Yeah. So for her, I mean, God, more power to her using that fucking toilet. But if I see a toilet taped up with duct tape, I'm not opening it. I'm not risking The chance of what could even be in there. I mean, there could be just shit in there, just shits, tons of shit. There could be a snake like an anaconda from last week's episode. You should listen if you haven't already. Uh, There could be rats. I mean, there's so many things that could be in that fucking toilet. And she's very casual about using it.
2: She uses it. She flushes it. And as she leaves the bathroom, she flushes it. Rats start coming out of it.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love this moment.
2: Um, he sees Ben watching him on the mantle. So now he's aware that all the rats have made their way back and they are pissed. So he tells her they need to go. So he goes to her car, takes her to her car and they get there and she's like, Oh, I must've ran over something. And we see that her tires are all flat.
1: Those fuckers.
2: The rats did it. The cops show up again because they see him come out of the house. He says he's going to run in and call triple a um and he goes back inside and he like arms himself with a box cutter. Um and as he's walking around his house, suddenly like literally hundreds of rats fall from the chimney <laughs> and start chasing him through the house.
1: Oh my god, they're everywhere. The the volume of rats here is overwhelming. They're coming down chimneys and now pretty soon they're coming through the ceiling. The ceiling literally gives way under the weight of the volume of rats. It is horrifying. Um I can't imagine Last week, Troy, you said one of your top three fears uh, in life is being uh, crushed to death by a massive snake. (laughs) Mine would be being eaten alive by literally a a shitload of rats just fucking eating my skin off. I mean, this movie is terrifying based off the sheer volume of rats alone. Um, And this whole moment here, this whole climax puts them to use. Like It really utilizes their sheer numbers. Uh, greatly and it makes them very threatened
2: yeah he barricades himself in and in the kitchen Ben's watching him ominously uh, sitting on the counter and Willard apologizes he says I'm sorry for leaving you and he yells he's like Ben you can live anywhere you want I don't have anywhere to go Uh, the cops in the meantime are like walking around the house because they know he's in there and he's not answering and they look in and they see all of the rats in this house and the one's like oh dude we need to go call the health department. This place is full of rats. Willard. Okay. So when Willard came home earlier and was, was like kind of rat proofing the house, he did take this paper bag and put a rat trap in it. So he grabs the same paper bag and he offers Ben food. He's like, Ben, do you want some food? said, I'll give you some food. You can have all the food that's in this bag if you just go away. And you can see, again, this rat's acting is amazing. I know that sounds corny, but you can actually see this rat, like, contemplating, like, is he being serious and it kind of gets close to the bag and then, and you can tell it doesn't really trust him.
1: Oh yeah. If I was this rat, I wouldn't trust this fucker either. I mean, he's been up to no good, but the allure of this food, I almost feel like Ben, I don't buy that. Ben's this stupid at this point. Ben has orchestrated on his own accord, uh, the return of the rats. He got them back to the fucking house. Somehow, some way an army of thousands of rats that had to be very very difficult to get all those fuckers back there, but somehow he oversaw this. Um, so I don't know if I believe he would buy into this food uh, that is being promised to him, but he does. And this moment here involving his paw, oh my God, yeah, well, he sees
2: the as as uh, as Willard approaches and Ben actually sees in the bag that the rat traps in there and it kind of backs away and Willard actually ends up dumping the bag onto him. to get the trap to go off, and it goes off on his little paw. Yeah, his poor little paw gets caught in the rat trap. And he's like squealing. Catherine, on the other hand, she's still trying to get into this house. And the cop's like, lady, you better get away from there. Do you want to get eaten alive?
1: Oh, I really thought that was alluding to something that was going to happen. I was like, oh, God, they're going to eat this poor this poor ginger haired dame who has no idea what she's getting herself into when she walks in there. And there's just thousands of fucking flesh eating rats. But
2: there's this moment then when, when I actually um, Willard runs to the window and he, he's trying to get out of the window, but the uh, there's like bars on it that won't open and he's screaming for help. Uh, he's like, please help me, please help me. And she backs away and, I guess the inference we're going to make is she has figured out that he has something to do with the rats and Mr. Martin's death because she backs away and ignores him.
0: That's what I gathered, too.
2: Yeah, but it kind of does this really feel like her like her character throughout the whole film? Like this whole character has existed solely in this movie to be sympathetic towards Willard, right? That's her whole goal in this movie has been she's I mean, that's all she's done. She brought him a cash. She's come over to his house multiple times to check on him. She tells him she he, earlier at his mother's funeral that he has a friend. You're going to you're going to mean to tell me that she's going to let something that isn't even like concretely proven. Now she's like, oh, well, fuck you. I'm not even helping you. She, she
1: backs away and leaves. It does seem to me quite out of nowhere that she has such like a change of heart, like right then and there. I think what's implied is that she's seeing him. He's sweaty, he's bloody, he looks crazed, and for the first time she's scared of him. Um, I think that's kind of like what it is. She didn't expect him to turn into this, you know, and now he just busted through a window and he's covered in blood and sweat and she's just like, Holy shit, he really is crazy. But for me, it's not just the fact that this is her response it's the fact this is our final moment with her so what does throw me off is the fact that like we aren't even revisited by her checking on him at the you know at the ward or speaking to a police officer regarding her situation and voicing the fact that she thinks he's to blame like even yeah make her make her finally turn on him too and say i think this fucker is crazy I mean, that's fine with me if you give her like kind of a moment of closure. This just doesn't seem like a strong enough conclusion to this character who has been a source of good throughout the whole film. Um, I would expect there to be something more. Either put her life in danger or have her get eaten by the rats or have her have a moment, like a final beat where we feel like there's a conclusion to her story within this world.
0: Yeah, definitely. I felt felt she could have been brought in maybe additionally at the very end which circles back to her not being utilized too much in the final film
2: yeah no i agree it was just an abrupt character shift for me um the how i mean yeah the house the ceilings are starting to collapse because all the rats so willard runs upstairs and comes face to face with ben and he looks at ben and ben's like staring at him and he's like I thought we were friends. Ben and Ben like bites his face. It causes him to fall from the stair- the staircase. Outside, you have the cops and Catherine out there and they're watching the house and there's a the window uh, they're looking at upstairs and we do see the silhouette of Ben appear in the window. And then all of a sudden, Willard comes, his silhouette comes into frame with a knife and he stabs Ben to death. And all we see, we see it through the silhouette of the window. It's kind of a really cool shot. But that's the end of, that's the end of Ben. He stabs Ben to death.
1: It's a cool shot, but I'll say like after that phenomenal shot of Willard, who for a moment, you presumably think that he falls to his death in the army of rats, you see him drop into the uh, into the swarm beneath him. Um, and then it's con- the conclusion is this whole moment through the window of him killing Ben in silhouette. It's a really cool visual, but it does feel kind of tacked on there to me because you have this huge grand finale and then you see this final kind of moment just through the reflection of this window. You don't even see the reflection it's through like the shadow of the curtain that you see the silhouette. So um, it feels like almost kind of rushed. Like I feel like a moment like that between him and Ben deserved a bit more of a beat because Ben has kind of been like his main, in a way it's the main antagonist to Willard throughout the course of the film because Willard is so resistant to befriending him. I don't know. It felt kind of tacked on there, but I still thought it was, yeah, a really cool visual to see that. But I'm shocked that's how they, you know, brought that character to conclusion. I thought Ben would have a far a far bigger final moment.
2: I would have almost preferred that we didn't know exactly what happened to Ben. That after he fell from the, or from the staircase, it cut to him in the psychiatric ward. And we had, we did not know then what happened to Ben. We didn't know his fate. He could still be out there. Is he going to come for, come for him? But no, we get that, you know, silhouette that you're like, yeah, kind of a cop out kind of tacked on. And then it does cut to this mental hospital where the orderly's trying to give Willard food. And he's like, Oh look, it's cheese. Isn't that what the rat eats? Like in there. So even this fucking orderly is mocking him. So this poor Willard can't have anybody fucking be nice to him except Socrates And poor Catherine, because this Willard calls him, or this orderly calls him rat boy. Uh, I'm leaving the fine rat boy. Have it your way. I'll leave the food here. He leaves the food and all of a sudden this white rat comes out of nowhere and starts eating some of the food and then crawls up onto Willard, goes into a sleeve sort of like uh, Socrates used to do. And Willard's like, oh, you've come back to me. You know, all we have to do now is sit and wait. We just sit and wait. Wait quietly. Quiet as a mouse. And that's the end of the film. Giving me some very, very heavy, heavy Psycho vibes. The end of Psycho.
1: Absolutely. But I think it's a uh, very intentional comparison they want you to take away from the end of this moment. Because it is about, both films are about young men. Strange maternal, very strange maternal relationships. Um, how it kind of affects their overall state of being and their eventual decline into insanity. I mean, they, they hit similar beats in their own way. So I do like that comparison. I noted the same thing. I think that that it definitely has um, a similar kind of uh, wrap-up conclusion, uh, leaving it very open to what I think could have lent to a very unique extended story for this character. Um, I still stand by feeling like I was deprived of kind of seeing Willard at his full potential, uh, knowing what they're able to pull off with those rats in a way. It felt like they just kind of uh, touched the tip of the iceberg with, with with what they could have done with that. So um, I, I selfishly wanted to see more of it, but for what it is for the story, it tells what they executed with those rats, how they pulled it off with some great performances. I mean, this movie is a very memorable piece of cinema. I would definitely want to sit down with this again. It's a movie I would love to watch with specific people to have a conversation piece uh, because, I mean, look at it. Yeah, we're over two hours. It's been a hot minute since we've gone this long, and we've been trying to kind of move through this you know, at a normal pace, but it's hard to because there's so many interesting aspects about what make this movie so unique and stand out from the from the dramatic score to the gothic location to the costuming to the color palettes to the usage of fucking animals. Uh, in in real live action sequences. It's just, it's truly an impressive piece of cinema. I'm baffled that it has not secured more of a fan base. And Kyle, I, I really appreciate you for picking this film because I think this is one that sticks with you. Um, And I, I mean, honestly, for you, selecting this piece, coming in with intention, uh, what what do you take away from this film? You know, you sit down, you watch it, you revisit it. You said you watch it seasonally. Um, What is the ongoing appeal for you with this film?
0: I think um, it is the perfect atmosphere movie. A lot of people, when they talk about the Halloween season, they will talk about movies that they watch to get themselves into the mood. Movies like John Carpenter's Halloween or um, Hocus Pocus or the Halloween Town movies or Casper. I think that this perfectly sets the mood because in reality yeah i mean there there are like gorgeous autumnal colors around that time but it's also fall time and it's getting to be the weather's getting shittier and i feel like especially around october because it's always like gray and rainy around uh, around halloween i feel like this encapsulates the seasonal mood perfectly and the simple fact that i think crispin glover is is a national treasure and he's phenomenal in this and it was perfect that when they end the movie they have him do a cover of michael jackson's ben which i think is a better version because it fits more along with the story i i think i, I just i think it's a it's a almost beautiful type of horror movie that is is incredible in its Immersion with with its its fantastic performances from everyone involved to the level of suspense and as you mentioned anxiety that's risen throughout the entire film. I I think it's it's phenomenal. I
2: I would definitely agree with both of your assessments. I had said I had never seen this film, so going into it, I seen the original. And I was kind of curious to, of what they were going to do, and I t- they take the story in an interesting enough direction while paying. A lot of homages to the original, but it making it its it's own unique thing, which was really a treat to watch. And like I said, Crispin, Crispin Glover deserves so much more recognition for this performance. And I'm wondering if this film would have performed better at the box office if there were maybe tentative plans for a sequel because, you know, the original Willard has the sequel, Ben, called Ben. So I'm wondering if that was ever in the cards. And it's just because this film sort of came and went at the box office without making much impact that it was just scrapped. Because I do feel like there could have been a really cool continuation of the story. But overall, this is a film I think that deserves to be talked about a lot more. And again, it's one that I think a lot of people have probably forgotten about. Because before until you told me, Roger, hey, we're going to cover Willard. I hadn't even thought about this film for, I'm going to admit, probably 20 years since it came out, but I'm glad we got to review it. So yeah, Yeah,
1: it's really just so confusing to me that this film didn't gain some more of a cult status and maybe it will in time. I mean, it's still reasonably fresh. It's, you know, it's, it's post millennium, at least it's 2003. So I mean, Horror movie fans are strange. They're they're uh, very fickle and you know certain things can come up out of nowhere and suddenly it's it's iconic. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden something's iconic. It just takes the right Blu-ray release, it just takes the right uh, point of recognition, uh, form of representation for something to become mainstream again. So I really hope that this film somehow re-enters the public psyche. Uh, And more prominently so. Because I just think it's really just a masterful piece of cinema. Really well made. Even for its flaws I voice, they're they're selfish flaws. They're things I would like to have seen more of. But it still tells a phenomenal story. A sad story. A human story. And a story that shows a lot of weakness in both the villains and in the hero. Um, And I love that. And um, I'd be interested to see so much more from a lot of the people involved. But especially the director. My God. I mean... Yeah, you're right, Troy, you said earlier, The Black Christmas, people thought it was a debacle. I think it's great. I am. I never had a problem with it, and I still don't. And I think that this is a, a time where that, that title has become far more loved and respected. And if that's the only thing that's holding him back from securing another gig, I mean, people get the fuck over it. Let the gays tell you. We always know when something is good. We'll tell you. That Black Christmas remake, it's fine. Give the man another film.
0: My God. So he did. He did direct a couple of episodes of um, the X-Files when it came back just a couple of years ago.
2: Yeah, well, maybe. Well, hopefully, maybe that'll lead him to another feature. He, I, I feel like he definitely deserves the, the shot at directing another horror feature because his stuff is not terrible. He's He's made better films than a lot of these other filmmakers that are getting multiple films under their belt. So.
0: Oh, absolutely!
2: But yeah, that is Willard, guys. We're going at almost two and a half hours, so I'm assuming people want us to wrap up.
0: Well, this movie
1: got quite a lot of attention. <laughs> it
2: did. There, are people are probably like, "How the hell are you guys talking about a rat movie for two and a half hours?" But leave it to us to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty pleased with us, Kyle. I'm pleased with you for picking it. Um, you know, we we appreciate you coming on and being part of our. Show full of just fun and nonsense and gayety, uh, talking about horror movies galore. We know who's better to join us than you.
0: I, well, thank first of all, thank you ever so much for having me on. This was, I, I waited so patiently and it paid off perfectly. I mean, you, uh, Roger, I've mentioned before, you were one of the sweetest people I know, and Troy, it is fantastic finally getting to at least speak to you. Um, I do admire uh, your work. Um, it's it's pretty astonishing the this is this is just a a fantastic time i laughed really hard as many will hear (laughs) um it's it's this is perfect i feel uh rejuvenated like i can stay up for another 82 hours and be perfectly fine
1: oh my god by the end of that you'll be looking like Hmm. his mother
2: He'll be laying on the staircase, <laughs> screaming his head off. But no, Kyle, thank you so much. That I really appreciate it. Definitely. It was great having you on. And uh, yeah, why don't you, Roger usually does this, but why don't you uh, share where our listeners can maybe find some of your, your work, your upcoming work, your past work?
0: Absolutely. So on SoundCloud... You can find my music under my name. Uh, it is Parody Rap. I portray a character where I am deliberately trying to be as terrible as possible. Uh, it is Concrete Angel, K-O-N-K-R-E-T-E, Angel spelled how you normally spell it. That is also my YouTube channel. I'm inching on 500 subs, which is pretty nice to me. That's at least 500 people that want to watch me. Um, same name there. Uh, I do all kinds of videos. I have a new series coming up uh, called Show Me Your Stuff where I just bring on um, guests who have unique collections and I just, I let them show it off. Um, I also have a novel that I wrote two years ago that I am pretty proud of called Behind Blue Eyes that is available for free to read on Wattpad. Uh, just under my name, K-Y-L-E-H-A-I-N-E-S. And for those in the Cleveland area on March 4th, uh, I will be the host, the MC for uh, the premiere of Evenfall uh, from filmmaker Dustin Lee. So I'm pretty proud of how far I've come, and I'm excited for the future ahead.
1: Let me tell you this right now, too, about Evenfall. I'm just going to say it. I'm from Cleveland. I've partaken in the Cleveland film scene for most of my life longer than I care to admit I've been alive. Um, but um, that even fall, let me tell you, looks phenomenal. Um, and I'm not promoting it for any re- reason other than one to state that it looks so fucking good. It blows me away. I'm, I know the, f- the filmmaker on Facebook and that's all really. We don't have like a working relationship. So I'm just speaking simply from what I've seen of it, which is how truly impressive this independent production is. Troy, um, you'll be able to find some stuff online. Listeners, I suggest you look this up as well. If you like indie cinema and you want to see people making some quality magic with little to no means to do so, I mean this is a very impressive production and Kyle, I was so happy to see you attached to this event because I'm so happy they're screening it as an entire piece. It should be seen as such. What's really impressive. I'm so happy that you're involved with that team and just everything you're doing. Um, You've got a lot of pots on the stove right now and i think they're all about to boil over i'm so happy to see you succeed because you're a kind person you're a good person and you always support the indie filmmaker so thank you for supporting me thank you for supporting troy i know you have supported all of his films and viewed all of his films so thank you for that from both of us truly
2: yes thank you thank you
0: oh absolutely absolutely and uh I, I, I got to tell you, Roger, I cannot fucking wait for me. <laughs> tell <absolutely> me more.
1: <laughs> go on. <laughs> oh, God. I'm excited to see it, too. Uh, my team was working on it today, so that's actually – I'm about to jump off and go check that out. A cut of that. Very excited. Yeah. Awesome. It's Yeah, I, it, it's
2: going to be amazing. Trust me. Uh, but with that, real quick, because we've gone oh, – We've gone long. I will just, guys, let you know, next week our episode is going to be a redux of our very first Dark Knight of the Podcast episode, which we covered Hellbent. That's right. The Gay Slasher from 2000, We are 2004. We are redoing it.
1: Yeah, it's our first ever rewind and repeat episode.
2: Bigger and gayer this time, because that first episode, we had no idea what we were doing. Oh,
1: yeah. And this time... Let me tell you, we got some things to talk about. Things that we didn't get to touch on. Now knowing that you'll listen to us to, for two plus hours, some of you, I'm sure, some of you have signed off by now. Uh, but, uh, but we, I mean, we're getting in deep, as deep as you would expect with with that fucking movie, which is fist deep.
2: Because <laughs> literally, I went back. No, I went back and looked, and I think that episode is like barely forty minutes. Yeah, we're gonna be expanding <laughs> so, so- upon that yeah so check it out that'll be next week but guys thank you so much again check out the patreon patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast there's 20 bonus feature episodes up full length or leave us a nice five star rating and review on apple podcasts but with that we will uh let you go
1: (laughs) we've really kept you hanging on for this one but you guys thank you for sticking around and thank you kyle for joining us for this episode of dark night of the podcast
0: Thank you for having me and to all listeners uh good night good morning good afternoon good evening and have a very
1: pleasant oh party. fabulous exit goodbye <laughs>